This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared it subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have had so much to Co-host Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we're finally back with another round of the Grotto QA. Number nine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Number nine. These are some of the questions that are left over from the ones we assembled last time. You know, the podcast is getting popular, or you know, relatively popular, I guess. It's uh, you know, becoming more popular all the time, I suppose. Uh So that's good, obviously, uh, but it's leading to a lot of questions. So a a slight backlog is uh, developing, you know, but uh, we we will get to all of them. We're going to try to maintain our our promise, you know. Uh, Yes. So keep an eye out. Eventually you should hear your question addressed. Uh, Yes. You know, like we said, with the exception of like, are you going to do an episode about like this? Like, just assume the answer is like, yes, Uh, unless we do answer it like because I, I think we will answer a few that might become episodes later on yes but if the question is like will you do this like you know we might not answer some of those questions but yeah and you can assume so, a blanket answer of yes but we might answer some of those sure uh, and you know so d- don't be distressed if you asked a question last month and you're expecting to hear it on this episode yeah, we're just working through. Uh, quite and down a the line, backlog. yeah, don't be uh, distressed if you answered a question like three months ago or something. Uh, <laughs> we're still working through them. We're we're getting there. Uh, yeah. We're not avoiding your question because we're you know uh, running interference for Lady Gaga or w- whatever. Um, no, we know. certainly are not. Um, yeah. And uh, she's gonna come up, uh, I think, today. Yes. So we have some meaty questions today. And I guess I just want to note, before we start, uh, for anybody, I I think if people have heard these before, they know what the deal is, people that sign up on Patreon, there's a little question sub-tab in the Discord where people can ask questions, and I just want to clarify, because, you know, we're known as a pretty, uh, a pretty, like, research-crazy podcast, as it goes, Mm -hmm. I would say, um... I guess some people think our narrative arc gets lost sometimes, which might be somewhat true. But we do do a lot of reading and a lot of research for most of our regular episodes. And we do not, because I think we simply do not have enough uh, free time in our lives, uh, do 
the same level of aggressive deep diving on no. the questions for a Q&A episode. So just keep that in mind. We're kind of shooting from the hip a little bit here. Yeah, Even though so. we do get excited sometimes and start researching on the fly and spend 45 minutes on a single question. Yes. But that's very organic. I we mean, don't not that we don't, that. not that we're saying we'll never make any kind of mistake on another episode, but if we make a mistake on this one, uh, cut us special slack because... Uh, you know, this is basically going in cold most of the time, unless like we've seen the question beforehand and become intrigued. This is kind of, you know, like our touch base with the Garado, you know, a little bit of a reprieve from some of the heavier lifting that we do for the other episodes, you know, and yeah, like kind of correspond with the, the acolytes out there, uh, you know, get uh, yeah. ideas for future directions, you know, just kind of riff a little bit. Uh, that's sort of the the concept. So, yeah, no, I mean, appreciate that uh, there's such a high bar uh, that people might be bothered. I don't know what in particular that would be, like what our past Q&A episodes people were aggrieved by uh, in particular, but... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, if it was not, if it was, oh yeah, if it was not watching his like dumb show about drugs, sorry. Like it is uh, sus that he laid flowers in the grave of the guy who invented PCP and said that it was no different than any other drug, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> under other circumstances. Like you know, it's the same as Advil. Like okay, like uh-huh. yeah, uh, I guess yeah, it's unfair to not like waste our whole lives watching like his drug show, but. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, we did no investigation and we have no right to speak about that. But uh, well, yeah. we did see such as saying that PCP is no different from their drug, that like the guy who synthesized PCP was a great man and like laying <laughs> flowers on his grave. I feel like that's kind of like, you know, almost intentionally provocative like i don't know yeah, like trolling doesn't he, a little bit I, I feel like maybe he would be pleased uh, that people were like, you know, saying that. Uh, he was obnoxious, like, or being, you know, riled by his... Anyway, we're just doing it again. People, well, The Hamilton stands are going to be uh, furious again. They're going to be pissed. But, They're going to be pissed. Yeah, but, you know, a, the, la- the last thing I'll time. say, I had this thought the other day, you know, this is this is kind of like subliminal jihad's mass line, in a way. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're checking in with the people on the ground and seeing what what's on their minds and trying to synthesize it for our own explorations down the road to try to clarify various matters. And so I think, you know, I'm happy to think of it that way. Yeah, that's... But, you know, so, yeah, I know no investigation, (laughs) no right to speak, but, you know, we are still doing a little investigation and we're speaking a little bit. So I think that's... (laughs) You know, well, I don't um, know. I feel like there's this uh, this whole liberal rights framework uh, is problematic, you know, uh, and often is used as a tool of imperialism. So uh, we don't. I mean, I personally am not concerned about like whether I have a right to speak. I'm just going to do it. Uh, ooh, oh, oh, spicy. Okay, well, we'll get yeah, to that in a second you know. um, on our second question. But hey, let's jump in. All right, we got a lot of questions today. So the first one's pretty good, and it's by. Uh, from the aptly named conspirator, and they ask, what is the official uh, subliminal jihad trademark symbol, R copyright symbol, take on Est and Werner Erhard? What are we to make of Scientology's war on Est and its affiliates, Playtime, Summit, etc.? I feel like Scientology was, they thought that they were being ripped off, which may have had some truth to it because they are both kind of like uh, sus, basically cults or 
like, uh, you know, weird, like, mind control programs. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very not down with uh, EST or Werner Erhard. We talked about him a little bit on the show before and his connection uh, to Esalen. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. And, and I think that I think he even absolutely... Jack Sarfati, as us as he was, like, hated Werner Erhard and the uh, influence that he exercised at Esalen for a while. Yeah. Like, even he was uh, uh, sussed out by, by him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, yeah, we have talked about him before. I think he is somebody that definitely is going to get their own episode one day because he had a pretty large impact of all the people in kind of the sort of new agey human potential movement, self-help movement. Yeah, he kind of stood tall above everybody else and it really became like a a phenomenon in the 1970s. And then uh, I'll talk in a second about like the iteration that kind of evolved to today. But, you know... He's, I think you can see the influence of a thing like Est in all kinds of things in like Silicon Valley corporate culture, just corporate culture actually in general now, and um, all kinds of things that are kind of, that emanated out of Esalen and how, I mean, we were just talking about Maoism, but I feel like, you know, his adoption, he did study Scientology, he studied Zen Buddhism after attending seminars by Alan Watts with whom mm-hmm. he became very good friends um, and uh, other kinds of like organizational things like encounter therapy, transactional analysis um, and things of that nature that were, you know, basically really uh, kind of a big deal in the sixties and early seventies in San Francisco where he was living at the time. And I think um, one thing I didn't notice about him and again, we'll, we'll kind of save like, maybe some of the juiciest bits for our own episode one day is that a lot of his uh, principles got adopted by the Harvard Business School and I think also by the JFK School of Government at Harvard. Apparently the people at Harvard are quite, you know, smitten with um, with Werner Erhardt, even into the 2000s. He participated in an event in 2004 at the JFK School called From Thought to Action, Growing Leaders in a Changing World. I think even stuff like Nexium, which of course is like kind of the darkest example of a kind of cult, it's still very much, I think, was yeah. predicated upon the like the executive success program was very much modeled upon Est and that kind of framework that had become popularized in the 70s. And yeah, he's a pretty he's a pretty sus guy <laughs> overall. I mean, uh, I think I think Scientology in the 90s and the 2000s started going in hard against him. I don't know too much about their precise feud, but I think you're right. Your instinct is right, that they were kind of fighting over the same market share. And also, uh, given that... Well, he had studied Scientology prior to starting S. So I think that they actually may have been correct that he stole stuff from them. Oh, for sure, for sure. Like... You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, the other thing that's, like, really interesting about him that I have kind of an indirect, like, personal connection to is, you know, in 1991, he retired, like, suddenly kind of from the whole Est and the foundations that he had, and he sold all of his existing intellectual property to his employees, who then adopted the name Landmark Education, which is... Uh, kind of runs something to this day that is somewhat influential called the Landmark Forum. Now, more on that for a second. The thing that's weird is that the reason he kind of dropped out of life, I think, in 1991 and sold off everything was because he had been accused, I think actually in an article in the San Jose Mercury News, of uh, tax fraud and uh, committing incest. 
uh, upon his uh, daughters, and he kind of uh, disappeared for a little while. Then I think he then sixty minutes covered uh, his out al- those allegations in nineteen ninety one. Um, and then he sued the San Jose Mercury News, uh, the reporter John Hubner, uh, in 1992 for libel, defamation, slander, invasion of privacy, and conspiracy. And then, I guess, uh, yeah, and then later his, his daughters retracted the allegations of sexual abuse they had made against him. And then one of his daughters sued um, the San Jose Mercury News and the reporter for $2 million, accusing the newspaper of having defrauded her and invaded her privacy, saying she had exaggerated information, been promised a $2 million book deal, and appeared on 60 Minutes to get publicity for the book. Uh, She claimed that her quotes in in the Mercury News article were deceitfully obtained. So I don't... I mean, I don't know what to do with that one. I feel like there's a lot of cases like that where people retract after the fact. Like, I feel like you don't have to be too imaginative to, you know, have a notion of what happened uh, in that situation. Uh, That there might be some kind of intimidation Uh, or bribery involved. Uh, Or manipulation of some kind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. I feel like there's, you know, just troves upon troves of stories of similar things happening where people retract their allegations. In fact, I think that Trump's ex-wife is is one example. You know, she's like, I take it back. Uh, You know, the rape allegations. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, she yeah. at one so, time just straight up said, like, he raped me, but then, but then took Oh, yeah, back. that's so right. It's, it's fine. He yeah. was just, you know, trying to stop Epstein. That's why he became president. <laughs> of course, that's why. Uh, <clears throat> so just real quick, the landmark forum is really interesting because that's still around today. That's like a very Tony Robbins, like, you know, this will change your life kind of program that I think you go for like a three to five day retreat. And... I the first time I ever heard of this was like in my personal life because I remember kind of coming back uh, visiting back in in the Bay Area like this probably was like you know 10 11 12 years ago and I was hanging out with one of my friends from high school and we were talking about another friend uh, a mutual friend from high school and um, let's just call him Josh that's not his real name but uh, our mutual friend and he's like dude like did, are you aware we're like what you know Josh is up to right now I'm like what and he's like dude he's joined like a cult and I'm like what <laughs> like what do you mean he's joined a cult he's like yeah dude he's joined this thing called like the landmark forum he started going to these basically these workshops and then he came back and he was just like absolutely obsessed with it he got his whole family to sign up for it and Damn. now they're all going and like he's just like non-stop trying to get me basically to like go with him and also you have to pay like hundreds of dollars to go to these seminars and then you know it does does this sound tell me if this sounds familiar then as you go to the higher orders you have to pay more money to get like a higher certification and then you got to pay more money and blah 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 and then you're always encouraged to bring other people in and he's just kind of like it's like he's been brainwashed by this like corporate self-help group and stuff and like he kept telling me and I guess my friend even though I think this is not explicitly a religious kind of cult. This is very like mm-hmm. corporate self-help stuff. My friend was like a pretty firm atheist and I think just anything smacking of like mystical cult shit like really kind of rubbed him the wrong way and he was like, he had to tell him like, stop asking me to go to this fucking thing. And he's like, no, 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 I just think it would be so good for you and like oh, it just God, opens up so many horrifying. things and he's like, okay, dude, I, I'll go 
But if it's bullshit the way I think it's bullshit and like I go and pay for it, then like I'm going to stop being friends with you. So like you have to decide. And I think his friend kind of like relented after that (laughs) because like he, you know, he thought, okay, like uh, maybe, you know, but he he had to really put his foot down to like stop him. And I think eventually he kind of cycled out of it after a few years. But, you know, I was just looking into them. There was a really interesting article um, about the landmark forum, which basically is based upon all the techniques of Est and is run by all the people that were running Est, like under uh, Werner Erhardt. I found this interesting New York Magazine article called Pay Money, Be Happy from July 2001. And just to give you like a little bit of like a flavor of what, you know, this group, it, it uh, profiles... A 25-year-old freelance TV producer named Tootsie Olan, who had been attending these, you know, landmark forum sessions, it talks about how she ran into a young black man in a black leather jacket in the subway in downtown Manhattan. He wore a gold chain around his neck and had a scar on his right cheek. Um, oh, God. To Tootsie, he looked like the kind of guy she normally tries to, quote, get as far away from as possible, especially in the subway late at night. And then Tootsie walked up and said, hello, can I talk to you? She told them about a weekend that had changed her life. It had cost her several hundred dollars, involved 200-odd strangers, and taken three days, though it can sometimes stretch into a lifetime commitment. About 125,000 people participate annually in cities as far away as Paris and Cape Town, when companies from Reebok to Agency.com even foot the bill. This is the landmark forum, called The Forum for short, and they say it will change your life. And this is a great money quote here. It's weird to think about how skeptical I was when I first went to the forum, says Chuck Polinick, 39, author of Fight Club. <laughs> I brought a book with me in case I was bored. Oh I immediately God. started, yeah, right? I immediately started railing against the leader about how they were just using me for my money. Then when I was walking out, it struck me that I was 26 years old and I was never going to take another risk in my life. I was the one being an asshole. So I went back and said, okay, I'd like to take a risk. Where do I sign? After that, I bought a word processor. That was my first step to being a writer. That's what it's all wow. about, Tootsie okay. says, over a lunch of tuna niquas at L'Express on Park Avenue South. It's about change. It's about transformation. It's about taking your self-esteem, self-hate, and self-destructiveness, your desires, depressions, and frustrations, your envies, your envies, passions, and anxieties. Everything you have come to feel makes you you, and having it all just disappear, like a train pulling out of a station. The past is past, the forum says, and has no bearing on the future, which is yours to invent. I saw, says Carol Vaporian, a financial reporter for Reuters, that I could create over time the world that I wanted for myself. Tootsie says, my transformation, she says, sitting on her hands, was a result of one realization. My whole life has been about being special. In high school, I was always an A student, but I felt special because I was also in a semi-professional dance troupe. After college, I went to Barcelona because I wasn't just going to move to the city like everyone else. Her neatly lipstick mouth purses into a self-amused smirk. I mean, my name is Tootsie, for God's sake. Ever since that weekend, all that has changed. I no longer have to be the person of the past. I can be any Tootsie I choose to be. To this end, she paid for the man in the subway to take the forum. Uh, last thing I'll read here. With its emphasis on self-examination, self-revelation, and sharing both of the room full of strangers, the forum seems more appropriate for 70s softies than the oddies urban warriors. Yet for upwardly mobile 20-somethings like Tootsie, the generation that talks sex with the callousness of Samantha and sex in the city, but armors up with irony to discuss the meaning of life, the forum offers a chance to explore their innermost hopes and dreams. In New York, the company recently moved out of its offices in a walk-up across from Macy's. Now it leases an entire floor of one World Trade Center. Hmm. So, by the way, this is written in July 2001. 
Huh, interesting. So they were in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I looked into it already. Apparently, they claim that nobody from Landmark Forum died. It would have been really dark. Well, I guess there was like they were a, on the like bottom floor, right? They were, I think, it? on the lower floors. And yeah. it would have been really... Because I remember my friend telling me like he had heard how these things are run. And I've read articles over the years. There have been like, hey, is this a cult kind of articles coming out every couple years? But it never manages to like fully stick. But I remember my friend telling me, dude, it's, like, so bizarre. Like, they lock you in there for, like, 15 hours a day. You get really short breaks. Like, your bathroom breaks are mediated. They don't even give you – like, you get, like, water breaks every two hours. But then it's, like, you're kind it, – it's basically kind of a classic cult thing where, you know, basically then I think you have one lunch break during the day and you're sort of, like, heavily encouraged to only kind of hang out with – the other people that are taking the workshop and basically there's a lot of like uh, kind of attack therapy shit going on of like people standing up and like sharing their stories and then the instructor kind of like beating them down a little bit and being like, you're full of shit, man. You know, like that kind of like, yeah, like Tony Robbins or like the abusive acting coach and body double, which is kind of based on similar techniques. So it, it would have been really dark to think that like they there would have been like a packed like workshop on the morning of 9-11 and everyone's like, you can't leave the room. You can't go to the bathroom and stuff. And then they all died. But apparently that didn't happen. And I guess the employees were like the first employee had just gotten there when the plane hit and they were able to leave and the other employees were like on their way. So they, they weren't in the office yet running workshops, but I did find on some forum people saying that for one, that in the other cities in the country, that all of the landmark forum workshops still held their classes the rest of the day on nine 11, which somebody commented is just like, that's so fucking bizarre. Like, well, they that, were told to go back inside, and the building was secure. Uh, well, was World <laughs> Trade Center one the, uh, what was the one, second one to fall, the South Tower? The North Tower was hit first. I forget if that was right, one or two. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. which one they were in, you know, maybe yeah. they were just told to... Uh, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, they, they, those people weren't actually like nobody was brought to the World Trade Center, obviously, oh, okay. or in New York. Just, but I mean, in every other city around the country, well, course, like La, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Than, yeah, it's still. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Don't stay home yeah, and watch the I mean, news. Uh, you got to go to this class and like keep going and yeah, stuff. I the other you thing that while 9-11 was happening, they were staying in the building to. No, like, no, no, know, no, 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 no. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. that would have been like very dark because that's what they normally would do. Probably not if there was like, you know, a building was hit by a plane but in general they lock everybody in for hours and tell them like you know basically i i don't think they like uh like i mean well Erhard's seminars training was i mean like the descriptions of it like from the 70s like from the heyday of it uh was like you know basically that they would make you share like your most humiliating experience and then people would like deconstruct it yeah you know like it was really like insane like synanon type stuff like you know not to absolutely say that. i don't know if there's a genealogical connection there but definitely like i think there flavor. is because of encounter he studied encounter therapy which i think was a huge uh influence on yeah on uh on the development of est so i think that yeah i mean he was also there there are some interesting figures that he hobnobbed with um i see here he held his first course of est in san francisco california in 1971 he led all the courses himself um but then by the 70s he had trained 10 others who were doctors attorneys and businessmen and women to do so 
Uh, the centers opened up in L.A., Aspen, Honolulu, New York, and many other cities, and was enthusiastically endorsed by celebrities and people of influence, such as leadership and business academic Warren Bennis, philosopher Walter Kaufman, social activist Jerry Rubin from the Yippies, business magnate David Geffen, author and businesswoman Ariana Huffington, artist and peace activist Yoko Ono, singer-songwriter John Denver, and actress Valerie Harper. He also, another person who's a big fan, I think in the 70s, was a scientist, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, later mm. on, somewhat of a friend of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And also, there were other people, I think, a little bit later on in the 80s, like Mike Wallace, Milton Friedman, Robert Reich, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Daniel Inouye um, were all basically got involved with, I think that was when he created the Forum in 1985 and started doing broadcast satellite seminars with like interviewing contemporary thinkers and things like that. He seemed to be very into kind of Milton Friedman and von Hayek. I think he edited a book a few years uh, ago. Well, it's interesting that he isn't, well, he wasn't born Werner Erhard. He was yes, born, I, yes. well, you know, I'm sure that uh, Prince Ray would have a field day with this, but he was born John Paul Rosenberg. There was a rumor, again, just a rumor, that part of his rationale for that was to, uh, you know, get rid of uh, Jewish weakness for German strength in his own mind. Uh, really? Uh, I, you know, that was a rumor that would circulate about him. Uh, Yikes. But, Yes, uh, but he, that name was a portmanteau of uh, Werner Heisenberg and uh, Ludwig Erhard, who was the West German economics minister. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of a, a big um, I think a that big he eventually was the chancellor of West Germany, but maybe not the time we take the name. He was the uh, Minister of Economic Affairs from 1949 to 1963. He, yeah. uh, he promoted the, the concept of the social market economy um, and kind of like is generally credited as like very influential in like the building of uh, crypto fascist uh, West Germany. <laughs> um, yeah, and also, you know, was a you know, he reluctant. He was technically a Nazi, but yeah, he's yes, yeah, said reluctant, to have been like you know, uh, more of a resistance figure. Yeah. Yeah, like um, resident of yeah. like somebody who didn't flee Germany, which I feel like always there is a, a little difference there. And no, um, yeah. but was like quietly not down with the Nazis. Uh, you know. Yes, uh, um, one could look more into that, but yeah. Uh, have you heard of the uh, the Barbados group that I did uh, see Erhard that. also founded? Yeah, the page for that, which, I mean, this was founded apparently in 2007, so it's pretty recent. Like, it was after his incest allegations and everything. You know, this is just, like, from their webpage. This abstracting journal will post the work of the members of the Barbados group, an international self-selected group of scholars, consultants, and practitioners whose intention is to create a new paradigm of performance, the working name for which is the Ontological Foundations of Performance. This new paradigm is based on the fundamental proposition that the performance of an individual group or organization is a correlate of the way the world in which and on which the entity is performing, quote-unquote, occurs for the entity. Our new paradigm also offers access to this, quote-unquote, occurring through a specific use of a distinct aspect of language. We intend the new paradigm to cause a new understanding of the source of action that provides powerful access to elevating individual, group, and organizational performance. Derived from such access, one can see the possibility of, and we intend to provide, new initiatives, applications, and practices that will be effective in reliably, rapidly, and significantly elevating performance of any enterprise or selected enterprise segment. We assert the possibility of such initiatives, applications, and practices, and therefore even the possibility of considering them, lies outside the current paradigm. 
The foundations of the new paradigm utilize the perspectives provided by the disciplines of neuroscience, complex adaptive system science, rhetoric, and philosophy. The new paradigm reveals the importance of the correlative, linguistic, and ontological elements of action. Correlative, in the sense that action is a correlate of the way in which the circumstances on which and in which the actor is acting, hereafter, quote-unquote, the circumstances, occur for the actor. Linguistic, in the sense that the way in which the circumstances occur for the actor is shaped by language. Ontological, in the sense that there is a form of declaratory language in which world matches word, contrast with the ordinary use of language in which word matches world, that can intentionally shape the way the circumstances occur for the actor, thereby reshaping action even in identical objective circumstances. We assert that within this new paradigm, it is possible to gain insight into what is being questioned with no answers regarding performance. That part, what is being questioned with no answers is like one, you know, semantic unit. It's like all with hyphens, like what is being questioned with no answers regarding performance. When performance is looked at from the current and to a large degree exhausted paradigm of performance, or at least get past the mere explanatory but non-actionable principles one is left with in the current paradigm. This new paradigm also provides insights into why what worked in the current paradigm did in fact work and provides a basis for its effective replication. All inquiries should be directed there. to Michael Jensen at hbs.edu. I assume that's Harvard Business School. Yeah, hey, uh, Mike, Michael C. Jensen is yeah the head of that, and he is uh, the Jesse Isidore Strauss Professor of Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard University. So there we go, Harvard again, uh, having some very esteemed outside-of-the-box yes. uh, thinkers with tenure there that, you know, are just so great. And I noticed here, because, you know, I think maybe we'll get to this in our next question in a second, but, you know, we've talked a little bit about how, like, universities like Stanford and MIT were, like, kind of obsessively studying Maoism and stuff in the 1950s and 60s, trying to maybe squeeze some kind of organizational wisdom out of that concept while, like, blocking any kind of the class-conscious, class-struggle elements of it. And I think that Est really kind of looks like that a little bit. And it's not something that I can absolutely prove, but... I mean, what it also reminds me of, especially this language, is... Uh, I mean, something that immediately comes to mind is uh, like Aquino's book on black magic. I mean, it seems very much magical or at least esoteric. I mean, the whole emphasis on ontology and performance, uh, mm. I think, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, the world will match the word uh, as opposed mm. to, you know, words being descriptive, they're performative, they change the world. You know, that's basically like, you know a spell magic. uh you know yeah basically that's the you know most simple definition of magic i mean it can also be used as a paradigm of different types of ritual action and you know not all uh systems that have a concept of the performative power of language or of symbology uh to transform the as aquino would call it the objective universe you know uh use the word magic to describe that and obviously they don't hear but it definitely reminds me more of that than of Maoism, as far as I'm familiar with it. Uh, I mean, definitely, they seems like they had struggle sessions as well, but I don't know. That's not necessarily unique to Maoism either. Uh, in fact, no, it's Mao, not. Maybe he and got I think, that idea I, I think from even, like Christian missionaries, you know? Yeah, uh, no, exactly. Well, I mean, I think yeah. these these things can kind of they're kind of uh, best understood sometimes as social technologies that you know, like 
they can kind of the the ends to which they are deployed can change, but it doesn't change the fact that you know basically it's it's a means of affecting a change in people and organizing groups of people. Um, you know, I'm just looking. I mean, here's an article published in the Barbados Group uh, Journal, Rhetoric and the Rise of Tribes, Using Organizational Alchemy, Um, (laughs) Why Rhetoric is Too Powerful and Had to be Lobotomized, Uh, Rhetoric Unlobotomized, Transformation of Terministic Screens, and all of this stuff is about leadership. You know, it's like creating an ontological science or of leadership basically like uh def- the defining principles of an effective healthcare leader uh, i wonder if this is used to clone fauci uh, i guess not because <laughs> he's not effective but or maybe or it failed program fauci yeah yeah he's been around forever um the last thing i'll read just going back to you know Earhart did study encounter therapy i actually didn't know this but the concept was developed by i guess a famous uh uh, I don't know if it was a psychologist uh, named J.L. Moreno in Vienna in 1914 um, and matured into what he called psychodrama therapy. But this is interesting. It was pioneered in the mid-1940s by Moreno's protege, Kurt Lewin, and his colleagues as a method of learning about human behavior and what became the National Training Laboratories, also known as the NTL Institute, that was created by the Office of Naval Research and the National Education Association in Bethel, Maine in 1947, first conceived as a research technique with a goal to change the standards, attitude, and behavior of individuals, the T group evolved into educational and treatment schemes for non-psychiatric patient people. A T group meeting does not have an explicit agenda, structure, or expressed goal. Under the guidance of a facilitator, the participants are encouraged to share emotional reactions, for example, anger, fear, warmth, or envy, that arise in response to their fellow participants' actions and statements. The emphasis is on sharing emotions as opposed to judgments or conclusions. In this way, T group participants can learn how their words and actions trigger emotional responses in the people they communicate with. So I don't. That goes all the way back to the Office of Naval Research in 1947 was, I guess, funding or, or created the first uh, forays in, in the United States into this thing that would become encounter therapy and spread around like a hydra and stuff. So that I'm going to put a pin in that for later, but um, very interesting lineage of this shit. Before we move now. on from Werner Hart, there's just so much, you know, and if we ever do an episode about him, you know, we're going to obviously have more than we have time to say, even in the four hours or probably take on it. So I just want to read this one abstract or a little bit of this abstract from one of the papers from their journal, uh, which I guess was presented at, Werner Erhard contributed to it, Michael Jensen contributed to it, uh, Steve Zafron, who I guess works for Landmark Worldwide LLC. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the company know. that does Landmark Forum today. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it seems like it was a Harvard NOM working paper, a Barbados Group working paper, and presented at the IESE conference. Uh, so I don't know if that's related to this. But anyway, so this uh, reminded me a little bit of something that we talked about a while ago. So he says, uh, the abstract says, we present a model of integrity that, as we distinguish and define integrity, provides powerful access to increased performance for individuals, groups, organizations, and societies. Our model reveals the causal link between integrity and increased performance, quality of life, and value creation for all entities, and provide access to that causal link. Integrity is thus a factor of production as important as knowledge and technology, yet its major role in productivity and performance has been largely 
hidden or unnoticed, it's been occulted, or even ignored by economists and others. The philosophical discourse and common usage as reflected in dictionary definition leave an overlap and confusion among the four phenomena of integrity, morality, ethics, and legality. This overlap and confusion confound the four phenomena so that the efficacy and potential power of each is severely diminished. In this new model, we distinguish all four phenomena, integrity, morality, ethics, and legality, as existing within two separate realms. Integrity exists in a positive realm devoid of normative content. Integrity is thus not about good or bad, or right or wrong, or what hmm. should or should not be. Morality, ethics, and legality exist in a normative realm of virtues. That is, they are about good and bad, right and wrong, or what should or should not be. Furthermore, within their respective realms, each of the four phenomena is distinguished as belonging into a distinct and separate domain. The definition of each as a term is made clear, unambiguous, and non-overlapping. We distinguish the domain of integrity as the objective state or condition of an object, system, person, group, or organizational entity, and, consistent with the first two of the three dimensions in Webster's Dictionary, define integrity as a state or condition of being whole, complete, unbroken, unimpaired, sound, perfect condition. We assert that integrity, the condition of being whole and complete, is a necessary condition for workability, and that the resultant level of workability determines the available opportunity for performance, hence the way we treat integrity in our model provides an unambiguous and accountable access to the opportunity for superior performance, no matter how one defines performance. For an individual, we distinguish integrity as a matter of that person's word being whole and complete. For a group or organizational entity, we define integrity as that, word, as that group or organization's word being whole or complete. A group or organization's word consists of what is said between the people in that group or organization and what is said by or on behalf of the group or organization. In that context, we define integrity for an individual group or organization as honoring one's word. Oversimplifying um, somewhat, honoring your word, as we define it, means you either keep your word or as soon as you know that you will not, you say that you will not be keeping your word to those who are counting on your word and clean up any mess you cause by not keeping your word. So rather than read this entire long abstract, which uh, goes on, uh, he just says, in summary, we should have defining integrity as honoring one's word as we have defined, quote unquote, honoring one's word provides an unambiguous and actionable access to the opportunity for superior performance and competitive advantage at both the individual organizational level and to empowers the three virtue phenomena of morality, ethics, and legality. So basically, I mean, he does say that it will empower the separate virtue phenomena, but he did also kind of create a separate realm of integrity that's independent entirely from morality, ethics, and legality, uh, yeah. which is all based on honor of one's word. <laughs> word, like, uh, yeah, W-Y-R-D. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because it's pronounced weird, of course, but oh, uh, right, yeah. as we know. But the fact that it's all based on honor and integrity and independent of ethics, I'm like, get a little bit of 09A vibes, you know, the yeah. fixation with honor. No, here. Definitely, uh, definitely. There's some dark. Uh, a value I, independent. Because that was something that was weird to me. That they were obsessed with honor. Uh, you know, just that's my pronunciation of the British spelling. But uh like, because they obviously are opposed to any kind of virtue. But here you go. Here's a framework, you know. It doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, normative values at all. It's just oh, about yeah, consistency. Oh, yeah, I think if you scratch beneath the surface of a lot of, like, California-y, new-agey shit, you will find that idea lurking around there somewhere that, you know, basically, when you ask, like, what is, like, the meaning of morality or, like, what is right and wrong, they say, well, you know, it's all about harmony. 
or something like that. Yeah. Like they give a kind of wishy-washy answer. It's all about you, basically. It's all about you being like, I guess that's what they mean by integrity is like all the different parts of you are integrated. They're almost like a bunch of integralists. They're, they're integralists. Yeah, exactly. They're the <laughs> ultimate integralists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's like we think of the, the common parlance of like integrity has is very much tied in with ideas of morality and right. Yeah, and well, wrong. as you like, said, that's a fallacy created by the dictionary, you know. Uh, okay, gotcha. That makes us think that integrity has to do with like, you know, being moral and being good and upholding, you know, principles. Like the idea of wholeness is in some way. Uh, I you don't know, think it's a virtue, coincidence but. that big corporations like Reebok and all these other companies have been sending their like C-suite executives to go to these seminars to basically, I think you could see a lot of these principles being used as like valuable tools for like not having, I don't know, uh, psychological like anguish, like managing the con- the personal like psychological contradictions of like working for a gigantic corporation like an extremely alienated corporation that probably deals in like sweatshop labor and like all these other yeah. terrible things like resource extraction, but you know, kind of directs you back to towards your own navel, you know, and it's mm. really just about you and basically kind of internalizes. The yeah. And making problems. sure that if you're going to break your word, you just say, Oh, I won't be keeping my word. <laughs> Okay. Well, because yeah, it's all about yeah. honesty, right? It's like yeah, the, exactly. it's like this twist on honesty. Well, as long as you say you're like fucking somebody over, breaking your promise to them, that's what matters. Because really, like bottling things up is not helpful. It's basically for about you. like keeping a consistent identity through all your insight roles. Uh, you know, <laughs> just making sure that there's some kind of internal consistency going on yeah. that you can grasp onto. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you self hypnotize, that. you have to have a stable personality. A. You know who can. Kind of like the master altar. Yes, while well, you're shifting the system. Yeah, while well, you're shifting through your different positionalities of the scion of Anglo-Dutch uh, settlers from 17th century, <laughs> uh, a Harvard Law School professor, and above all, a Catholic. You know, you need to be able to make sure that there's one organizing idea. Um, you know. Uh, yes, you do. Let's uh, let's move yeah, on to number two. We'll come two. back to him. We'll come. Yeah, back no, no, to we're him, gonna definitely gonna. There's so much with him, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll mm-hmm. we'll come back to him. But you know, speaking of uh, brainwashing, uh, do you want to read the second question here? Yes, uh, Sir Brainy asks, "Do y'all have strong thoughts on the resurgence of Maoism, especially amongst young people? Maoist Zoomers in China present a threat to empire." Maoists growing perennially in the U.S., Maoist parties in Philippines slash MPA slash Nepal. Honestly, I have not noticed, like, a resurgence of Maoism among young people, um, you know. I mean, I'm not, like, a big, like, a China watcher or China head necessarily, so maybe that's a phenomenon going on in China that I'm not privy to. I don't think that's something that I've noticed in the United States, which, you know, I consider myself to be a watcher of. You haven't noticed it, at least on Twitter? Uh, I mean, I've noticed, like, uh, you know, quote-unquote tankies on Twitter, but I don't know. I guess it's just, like, I haven't noticed that as being more of, like, a resurgence, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I guess it is a resurgence that there are more... But are there really more Maoists now than there were, like, in the, you know, boomer generation or among Gen Xers? Um, I feel like there are I plenty don't know of Maoist boomers, or at least I, I will, nominally Maoist boomers. I will say somebody who's... Um, you know, hung around in like paranoid tanky spaces on Twitter for some time that I definitely noticed Maoism has been brought up more and is talked about more. 
than like even maybe like three or four years ago. I feel like in the Trump era, some people kind of started uh, and, and I did kind of notice that Zoomers were particularly like Zoomers and young millennials kind of were a little bit more like Mao curious than say like millennials and Gen Xers. And um, I mean, boomers, a lot of boomers became Maoists in the seventies. I think that's actually part of the reason why I didn't um, investigate and, you know, apologies for uh, speaking yeah, regardless, no right but speak, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think that that was part of why I never looked too closely into Maoism because like my most direct contact with it was looking at, uh, like Western intellectuals that all kind of became Maoist for a few minutes in like the sixties and seventies and also groups like, you know, I'm thinking about years ago before I was fully like, I don't know, like paranoid pilled about a lot of aspects of the new left. But I remember hearing like, Oh, like the weather underground were like Maoists or like the Symbionese liberation army was Maoists and, and things like that. And so I always thought about it as kind of like a form of like ultra left, like adventurism when it popped mm. up in like France and in the United States and never really seemed to. And I also, I guess the Avakianites were also kind of Maoists, like the Revcom people who I would you know, I would dip into revolution books in Berkeley back when I was a teenager and they'd have a big, big portrait of Stalin and Mao, on the wall. <laughs> um, which it, in retrospect, I'm kind of like, oh, it's kind of, kind of badass. But uh, but I think still I remember talking at some kind of event. There were like a people there a few years ago. And, you know, th- there's also something so complex with Maoism because the last great socialist country is China and it. But it it has, I would say, deviated from like Maoism as it was eh, being as uh, it was practiced. No investigation. In, yeah, no I know, right? Speak. They're hundred percent. I would say perfect. there definitely was some revisionism um, of Mao, and I would say that Mao, even though he is still revered as kind of a symbol uh, in China, and you know, you'll still see like his you know his portrait in certain places. That uh, yeah. Maoist thought, uh, I think, Dengist thought is much more predominant. Uh, oh, than by Maoist the way, uh, let's make sure we say dung. It's dung. Uh, we've been saying dang uh we've gotten called out uh by it uh in a friendly manner not in the uh, manner we're gonna get called out for saying anything bad about china by said mouse zoomers i mean i just like generally don't uh i do notice a certain trend among zoomers of like china standing where it's kind of this sort of pollyanna-ish idea or like a need to have like a hero you know and i yeah like obviously like it's good to be like an anti-imperialist and to, you know, not, uh, broke, like, uh, uh, not brocha, like Western aggression towards China insofar as it manifests. I mean, we talked about before how like their economies like are really very much integrated. I mean, I was just, uh, I mean, I was recently listening to Joe Biden giving an interview where they were like, you know, what about the women of Afghanistan? He was like, come on, Jack, you know, they're, they're doing genocide in China. You're saying that we should invade China, you know, uh, (laughs) Like, you know, obviously, you know, from his point, but like he obviously like, you know, his whole thing was like, you know, how ridiculous it would be if like every time something bad happened in the world, we attack them. Like, are you saying that we should attack China? So it was like, you know, for uh, from his, uh, you know, in his rhetoric, something that was supposed to kind of like own this live journalist by being like, how outrageous would it be for us to go to war with China? You know, but some I mean, that's also I think something that's part of the same delusion of China's, you know. Uh, socialist leadership and and perfection. Not to say that there aren't admirable things about China and, uh, you know, good things uh, that China has done. 
Uh, but I don't know. I just feel like there's, uh, it comes with sort of a naivete and a lack of like real worldliness. I think a lot of the time, like, you know, I have like my sympathies, like for, uh, you know, certain countries in China, you know, even as one of them really, but, um, in some respects, you know, there's some things that I really don't like, such as the, the Xinjiang situation, even though we've talked about how there definitely are exaggerations that go around about that. Like, but it's not the sort of, uh, complete and utter lie. You know, there are certain things that they've just straight up admitted to, which I think would still be considered bad, you know, it, at least I consider it to be bad. Uh, sure, but sure. you know, yeah. I just don't like, see, I don't know. I don't have like an identity thing where I have to be like, you know, my identity is bound up with this country and like, I just, you know, I guess, cause I have like my religion that I have to like be super bound up with and invested in. So that's like my, where I think <laughs> people do that with States, you know? And I think that sure, sure. it's a, I think a little bit, uh, easier to do with religion. It's a bit more sustainable, uh, cause we're talking about God here, you know, not Z, uh, or she, sorry. Isn't it she? Yes, it's yeah, she. Just like Dong, just like sudden. Shung. You know, no, I'm just whatever. doing these phonetic uh, pronunciations, just like Anor. I apologize. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I do get think we're swarmed with, by the like, Maoist Zoomers. I, I really uh, do. Like, what, yeah. Uh, I, I and really Asana do has never to... done any chemical attack ever. Okay, He's never okay. ever. Okay. It, the the sarin attack one. was fake. But uh, anyways, right, uh, but right, about right, Mao, okay, like I think that Maoism is interesting. I'm starting to turn back around and like read a little bit more about well, like Mao's writings himself, and then also the, uh, you know, the various aspects of it and how it maybe, like, differed somewhat from the more, like, orthodox Marxist-Leninist, you know, policies of, like, the Soviet Union at the time. And I've said before, I think that regardless of, like, who was right and who was wrong, the Sino-Soviet split was kind of a great tragedy for 20th century socialism, because yes. it allowed about victory episode. Very yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, and about, by the eighties, they were helping yeah. the Mujahideen, and you know the the, the head United of States, Chinese really. Like, well, yeah, I know. mean, Bill Casey was flying to Beijing and hanging out with like the head of Chinese intelligence, getting drunk together and talking about how we're going to teach the Soviets a lesson. And I think you know, in other places, I believe like there were, there were just strange moves starting. Probably, I would say mostly in like the nineteen seventies, like very very late Mao Ma was probably already somewhat sidelined by that point, but certainly after he died where like they would go into Angola and like give weapons to Jonas Savimbi, who the U S was supporting because the MPLA, the main Marxist, you know, revolutionary group in Angola was backed by the Soviets. So they were like, well, like we want to fucking undermine the Soviet, like, I don't know, just kind of stuff like that. That's like, is that really like, uh, stoking the, the global revolution and like, you know, lifting everybody up when you're like, like making tactical alliances with the CIA all the time. Like it, there's stuff like that, but now, but it does make me think, it makes me re-question. And I kind of hadn't, I hadn't touched it in my head until some other uh, interesting, like smart people on Twitter kind of started talking about it more in the last like two years, but really like kind of Mao, what Mao was trying to do. And I think you could fairly say without you know, directing malice at him that maybe he failed to do this, but in like the great leap forward and the cultural revolution that all we ever hear about it in the West is like, 
A, it failed. It was a miserable <laughs> failure. They killed a bazillion trillion people, and it was absolute disaster. And eventually, like, Deng had to, like, take the reins away from Zhang Xing and Mao because, like, this crazy bit, you know, to paraphrase Adam first, like, this crazy cunt just decided because she couldn't be a movie star anymore that she wanted to punish everybody because she was an individualist. And that is mm. why neoliberalism came to China. Like, just shut the fuck up, Adam Curtis. Sorry. I, I got uh, okay, like, very triggered right, with that. Um, but, like, I think there's interesting shit there where, like, they were looking at how, like, the capitalist mindset was still ingrained in, like, the universities and, like, in the bourgeois class, which was not, like, totally wiped out after the Chinese Revolution, and how these attitudes and hierarchies and things like that had it still stood as like a roadblock and also like a threat to like the restoration of capitalism and i do think they were trying to find a way to like foster a kind of more uh i don't know like sturdy socialist culture in their country and you know did they go too far in a few places did they make some mistakes <laughs> i'm sure they did but I think it's interesting to look back on that because that was kind of like the high watermark in a way of this feeling that, you know, communism was like kind of inexorably encroaching and more and more countries in the global south were resisting like Western imperialism. And, you know, you had all these national liberation movements and stuff. And even though, you know, Che, like we talked about in our last episode, was very interested in like moral incentives in like Cuban industry and like not just fine. But he said, if if moral incentives don't work, by all means, we'll have to go back to material incentives. But I think, you know, I think he was right to maybe focus on you know, just little things like he had pointed out, like just the the decollectivization of farms in socialist Poland in like the late 50s, early 60s, like and also I think the kind of hybrid system in Yugoslavia, I think he noted after he went there the first time was like, well, this has been very economically productive and it seems to like work in a lot of ways. But you, he noticed a kind of mentality of like competition between like the different, you know, uh, farming firms or factories and stuff that were kind of like worker co-op armed. And he could kind of locate this like simmering capitalist mentality was still there and could pose potentially a threat because people weren't thinking in the way of basically like cooperating as a kind of social whole and things like that. So I think there's a lot there that like Mao, I mean, he wrote a ton of stuff and, uh, I, again, like, I'm not, I'm not a Mao expert, so I'm not going to pop off on, like, what was he right about, what was he wrong about, but mm -hmm. I do, I would separate him now in my mind as I'm going through reading different stuff. That I think things like the mass line, for example, were a really innovative concept, and that's why MIT and all these, you know, Western institutions were kind of studying it, and it still kind of exists in a different form today, like that, uh, that like integralist article we read where they're kind of looking at like authoritarian China is kind of like, Hmm, like the mass line thing. It's a kind of like a feedback. It's like a cybernetic feedback system so that the, the party and the government don't get like too divorced from like what the people kind of want in real time. Like you can constantly check in and check in and stuff. So I think there's like valuable concepts with that. And also I would, I'm curious in like Maoism making it to the West in the 60s and 70s and how that doesn't seem to have been a particularly successful or kind of right on way to go for the new left. And I don't think it, I think in the case of SLA, it was like 
like they just slapped like a Maoist label on them because they were like constructed by the CIA. But you know, maybe the weather underground also a little bit psyopy Cuomo just, uh, pardoned one of those guys who I realized his son is the DEA, the DA of San Francisco now, just like, you can't make this shit up. Um, well, it's like a very different social context. It's kind of like, you know, uh, like the Juche friendship society in some ways where like a yeah. lot of Juche is based on like the, uh, the Korean people and their strength and like their solidarity. So it's like, well, you know, what does Juche become about in the United States, you know? Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. So and it's the same thing. Yeah. I think when you kind of transfer out of these principles out of, and I think that a lot of Mao, a lot of his insights were how to adapt the ideas of, uh, communism and, and Russian socialism to, uh, China. Exactly. Uh, Well, that's why he was basically kind of a classic Marxist Leninist in that sense. And actually, this is why, like, as far as like, I don't I don't go too hard on like fucking labels or put flags in my bio or anything. But I still kind of like politically would kind of describe myself as like a Marxist Leninist because Lenin's innovation to Marxist theory was basically that you have to adapt it to the particular conditions of the country that you're having the revolution in and you need to adapt like kind of in a kind of, you know, scientific and like dialectical way and basically the particular means by which you will like, you know, succeed. So that's why you saw like Che Guevara was like looking at how, you know, Cuba was a monocrop sugar economy that had all American parts. All the productive forces were like American things that, you know, now they were cut off from. And so that brought to to bear certain kind of, you know, uh, particular issues that it's not one size fits all. And that's why like, you know, Vietnam, like the National Liberation Front and why Juche came about in the DPRK and why Maoism is like the form of Marxism-Leninism. I mean, you hate to say it, but it's like Marxism-Leninism with like Chinese characteristics or mm-hmm. like Castroism is Marxism-Leninism with Cuban characteristics, etc. So I feel like when you're approaching like America, you do have to think very long and hard about like what even is, what even would be Marxism-Leninism with American characteristics because we are still a nation state and, you know, I mean... Plenty of people have kind of written about that and stuff, but I feel like sometimes when you jump straight to like, we're going to implement the kind of policies and tactics uh, that Mao used in like rural China in the 1930s, or for that matter, Vladimir Lenin's tactics in, you know, Petrograd in 1917, like it's obviously not going to fit. And I don't think... I don't think somebody like Lenin or any of the other kind of classic Marxist Leninists, except maybe Trotsky, um, would say that like you can just copy and paste the approach that you would take basically in, in like one country and then just like recreate it. So I think like when you look at the conditions of like Russia at the end of World War One or China in the 1930s and 40s or the DPRK at the end of World War Two. Like, these are all very different situations than America finds itself in today. Though those are wartime situations, first of all. You know, I think that that's the most obvious thing, is that Mm -hmm. these revolutions succeeded out of an environment where the entire country was already caught up in a war. So, you know, which also kind of, you know, tempers down the kind of, like, they had guns and they were authoritarian, you know, and bullshit like that. It's like, well, everybody was at war. (laughs) Like, you know, like, (laughs) the Japanese were running around, like, raping and murdering everybody. Like, what the fuck do you expect? Yes, and also, Uh, like, every government has had, like, weapons and has been authoritarian, like, in history. 
yes, governments are fucking authoritarian. Now, if you want to be like, like an anti-prim, well, I guess insofar as know, they involve authority, I guess that uh, you know, authoritarian. I don't know. It's a, again, we said this is like a meaningless word that basically just means like not American, but involving authority. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't even know enough about like kind of the different strains of like in the Philippines and like like uh, what is it like Gonzaloism and stuff like that's going on in in South America right now. And some of those kind of like insurgent movements that have been percolating for a long time are in Nepal. I know um, they have a big kind of Maoist movement there. Um, I think maybe other people are also excited because there seem to still be like Maoist insurgencies in different parts of the global south. Whereas Mm -hmm. I I think there's less so there really aren't any uh, like Marxist Leninist kind of insurgencies anymore. It seems like Maoism. But then ironically, you do have to wonder, like, I would not be shocked at all if they kind of weren't getting very much support at all from China. You know what I mean? Like, because China's, like, not interested in exporting Maoist insurgencies around the world. Hmm. Like, they, they'd rather export... Well, it's just, like, if they want to they want to get influence... I wonder. I mean, I certainly don't think that it is uh, unrelated that China still exists and the Soviet Union, like, you know, the, the People's Republic of China still exists and the Soviet Union doesn't. I don't think that those two facts are unrelated, that there are still Maoist insurgencies. And also, you know, in places like the Philippines, you know, they're still, like, within China's uh, sphere relative to, for instance, yeah. like, Russia. But, they're still, but like, correct China's, me if I'm wrong, like, a lot of these Maoist groups are against um, China as it exists today. I mean, I am not, like, uh, knowledgeable about it. I'm not necessarily saying that they're getting uh, funded, but, you know... I don't know, but, but I mean, that's well, part ones of the paradox that are like it, right? anti-China, then yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, like, like China. I mean, like, like Revcom, you know, just for example, they're probably shot through with like feds and informants, like literally. But uh, like, they're very anti-China today, but like mm-hmm. very down with Mao. So it's right. like this strange kind of thing where like the the country that is still kind of in some way carrying on the traditions of Mao like they're very against and so it creates this like complicated kind of situation but um i don't want to speak too incorrectly i don't know if every like maoist party uh in the the countries that sir brainy mentioned uh what their exact stance on china is or what china's stance is towards them but i do think it's interesting that it's coming back now and i do think i have noticed zoomers like i was talking to i remember meeting a zoomer who's kind of like casually a communist like a few years ago and she was just like yeah like i stand mao mm-hmm. and i was just like wait what um and like older to older kind of marxists or like academic-y kind of marxists who were just like totally stuck on like all the 19th century writings and like theory and things like that like they almost can't like they don't know what to do with that because they've been so far divorced from kind of actually i don't know supporting like actually existing socialism and Zoomers do seem to be more open to it because they totally did not live in even like the twilight of the Cold War. So for them, it's almost like another online identity to just be like, oh, Mao wanted to kill landlords based. Yeah, like, exactly. you know, kind of stuff like that. Or it's uh, edgy in some way where yeah. like, you know, as you said, like a lot of academics can get down with like Marxism. In, like If Marxism is defined as being like sympathy with the 19th century writings of Marx, which are incredibly culturally influential, like in a way that is apolitical, (laughs) you know, like they really just, they're used like for literary analysis, you know, like, I mean, I guess that 
that is in a way political, and I'm not saying that that's not, you know, that Marxist ana analysis isn't Marxist or, or and it doesn't have a politics to it, but, you know, it's not the same as, like, you know, being part of a red brigade. Not that these Marxist, these Maoist Zoomers are part of that and aren't just online. I kind of feel like both those things are lame, honestly. Not, yeah, not to be, uh, like, defeatist in any way and not to discourage anybody from, like, following their heart if it's calling them to, like, you know, be part of a Maoist cell in the United States. But, I don't know, I feel like some of the kind of Pollyannish Zoomer enthusiasm for the CCP uh, that I see and also, like, the kind of just moribund, like, theory brain stuff is, like, you know... I don't know, it's equally uninspiring to me on the on the American end, but I don't know. I, might I get, get I, I get how you can feel that, that way. Yeah. I, I was um, much more likely when like the Hong Kong stuff, uh, protests were happening uh, in 2019 to be much more of a critical defender of China and mm. was kind of thinking that. I mean, because, you know, all the, under Trump, like he talks shit about China all the time and seems like people like Pompeo and those kind of right-wing facts, you know, uh, factions, oh, you know, going back uh, to the John Birch Society, the I've first heard, uh, American <laughs> intelligence officer murdered by the communist Chinese. You know, I, I thought that maybe they were trying to start something. But uh, to be honest, like the COVID era has made me just kind of like has left me wondering. And I'm not saying like I'm not doing a Tucker and being like they released it from the Wuhan lab on purpose to take down Trump or anything like that. But I still do think there are certain aspects of how they've gone along with the kind of lockdown paradigm and everything else. And I don't know. It just makes me uh, a little well, like not going to lie. I actually have heard from some certain particularly vocal Maoist Zoomers that actually uh, she and Trump were really good friends and they, they loved each other and that actually the model for a Maoist insurgency in the United States should be, uh, you know, the People's Republican Party and that it's real, you know, uh, <laughs> that's that's what I that's the message that I've gotten. I've I, I think actually that you're you're misinformed about Trump talking shit about China they were actually they were actually best friends uh, as have far you been as, reading as the executive intelligence review uh, no I've been I've been reading the dissident the the the, the dissident formerly right on uh, now malice on on Twitter um, but, <laughs> the yeah, uh, yeah yes but, uh, um, but I don't know it's an interesting thing to keep no, I'm just, on yeah, I'm being I do want to read more Mao I think Mao in terms of like on like the things he wrote about you know like knowledge production ontologies and things like things like that are potentially very interesting on a kind of like applied philosophical level so i do want to get around to reading yes. more and i him. definitely see i definitely get what you're saying about hong kong where there are like certain things i mean you know i guess that i'm just like not in the right intersection for like some of this stuff where like you know it's just gonna like in terms of like the falun gong stuff i don't know like if maybe i had a different positionality maybe i would feel differently but like with the falun gong stuff like i'm totally on board with the tankies like in terms of that like you know i they're like yeah sus. that's bullshit they're sus but like you know when you like ban ramadan and like you know you're like oh you have a beard you're a terrorist uh that to me is like shut the fuck up like back off so you know yeah, there's, uh, can't, there, yeah, can't go there, with you there, on that and one. even even on that, like I've I've sort of saw, or I think my views have gotten a little more nuanced. Like it's hard to like reconcile the idea of like you're gonna hire Eric Prince to provide security yeah, exactly. against like oh, Muslim so extremists and Jing. Oh, like wait, yeah. what the fuck is happening? Yeah, so um, who really knows? But right. yeah, yeah, uh, to be continued with it. Uh, the investigation yeah. and the right to speak are to be continued.
Le Vietnam brûlait, moi je hurle Mao, Mao Johnson rigolait, moi je vole Mao, Mao Le napalm coulait, moi je roule Mao, Mao Les villes crèvent et moi je rêve Mao, Mao Les putains criaient, moi je ris Mao, Mao Le riz est fou et moi je joue Mao L'impérialisme dit que partout sa loi La révolution n'est pas un dîner La bomba est un tigre en papier Les masses sont les véritables héros Les ricains tuent et moi je mets ma homao Les fous sont rois et moi je bois ma homao Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne ma homao I'll read the next question here. J.S. Cutters, or J. Scudders. They ask, somewhat related to Thomas Pynchon and theory fiction, what are your thoughts on Bolaño? Uh, 2666 is definitely a book steeped in Dracularity. Um, have you read that? No, I actually don't know very much about this author at all. Um, I Yeah, I guess this book came out in 2004. So, yeah, I, I could have taken note of it then, but I, I hadn't heard of it at the time. Um, yeah, and lately I don't really read too many novels. Like I said uh, earlier, you know, uh, the you know uh, biggest occasion I would have to read one would be for the podcast. Like, Soumichon is one of the first uh, novels I've read, like, in a long time, like, fiction novels. Yeah, I, I think one day we'll we'll do a Pynchon episode, so I'll, I'll read, you know, up on him for that. Um, maybe we could do a Bolaño episode. Do you know about him, uh, Bolaño? I don't know very much either. I've never read any of his novels. I do kind of remember when 2666 came out, or 2666. Yeah, it sounds very Dracular. Yeah, I remember, and I remember, like, almost being tempted to buy it, but then kind of never really getting into it. I want to say, I don't know if he wrote any short stories or... I'm getting him mixed up with another very famous South American author. <laughs> I, I definitely, it was like him or somebody else who I read um, some short stories about. You're not thinking of like Borges, are you? I don't think I'm thinking of Borges. Um, okay, so maybe. It might be, there's like another name tumbling around in my head well, right now Yanya that I can't did recall. did write some uh, short stories. Yes, he did. He Which did. Which won literary prizes. Yeah, and I, I know he was kind of on the left and was a supporter of Salvador Allende. He was Chilean, Chilean, obviously, and was a supporter of Salvador Allende, got thrown in jail when Pinochet took over, and then I think uh, eventually fled to Mexico and then to Spain for many years. Um, I guess he was also uh, became a Trotskyist in the 1960s. So, I mean, I, I kind of generally will give, like, a little more leeway to somebody who becomes a Trotskyist if they're, like, an artist because mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense. Like, you generally agree with, like, socialist, Marxist kind of principles, but you're also all about, like, the libidinal and rhetorical passion and, like, excitement of, like, the revolution. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a certain vibe that's, like, very appealing um, or was in the 20th century maybe. 
to um, and also I don't know if anyone's like Soviet phobic, then it's a kind of perfect uh, branch for them. Um, sort of like maybe in the way that like Foucault would be a Maoist for a minute in like the seventies. It was kind of a trendy sort of thing, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that uh, the novel was uh, heavily praised by Oprah um, when it came out. Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She was, um, yeah, she praised it in, uh, Oh, the Oprah magazine after she was given a copy of the translation before it was officially published and it was considered the best novel of 2005. Yeah. Uh, Or at least in Spain and Latin America it was because it was written in Spanish, but yeah, I I don't know much more. It does sound like it's about a bunch of different things, like about like the femicides that were happening in Ciudad Juarez Right, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah mm-hmm, I'd seen that it, there is, uh, it was kind of set in a fictionalized Juarez. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, that, and that like was you know yeah. Killer, right? yeah, yeah, and there was a whole thing like that that really escalated. I think even after this book came out, when the the sort of the quote unquote like the the proper like drug wars like kicked off. I think in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, and yeah, there were like. I think hundreds of women getting kidnapped and like murdered and like it, it almost has uh it, it reminds me of, I think we should do an episode one day, but I think it was like the Matamoros cult in the eighties that mm-hmm. abducted an American college student and sacrificed right. him in like a satanic ritual. And they were like this drug gang that was led by this like insane Cuban guy or anti-Castro Cuban probably who um, I think it, uh, maybe died in like a police shootout in Mexico city eventually. But they had, I think when they raided their kind of remote ranch out by the, the borderlands between Texas and Mexico, they found like a bunch of different remains of bodies, like dozens that had been sacrificed. So, you know, for anybody that says like, it never happens, like nobody's ever sacrificed well, anybody to really the devil. that is not really a satanic murder because <laughs> it was bad and Satan is actually good. Uh, so if it was bad, it was not, not approved true. by the South Texas Grotto leader. Yeah, so exactly. It, Thus is grotto? not. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. In that case, uh, we do know who the grotto leader was, but yeah, it was like it was like some really like cobra shit, basically, but like real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if he gets into some of that stuff in his book. It also jumps around to like World War Two and like the Eastern Front, and probably sounds like it has some occultiness. I guess Apparently Henry Dracula's Hitchens- castle is involved, so maybe that's uh, where some of the uh, Dracularity comes in. Yeah, I see here in the Financial Times they wrote that it is a summative work, a grand recapitulation of the author's main concerns and motifs, as before Bologna is preoccupied with parallel lives and secret histories, largely written after 9-11. The novel manifests a new emphasis on the dangerousness of the modern world. 2666 is an excruciatingly challenging novel in which Bolaño redraws the boundaries of fiction. It is not unique in blurring the margins between realism and fantasy, between documentary and invention, but it is bold in a way that few works really are. It kicks away the divide between playfulness and seriousness, and it reminds us that literature at its best inhabits what Bolaño, with a customary wink at his own pomposity, called the territory of risk. It takes us to places we might not wish to go. Yeah, okay, that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good advertisement to get me sucked into it. 
you know, I think uh, whoever, it maybe I I'm assume it was him. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking of um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. That's oh, who okay. I've read short stories of who also yeah. was, yes, a hundred years of solitude. solitude. Yeah, exactly. So I think they were both running in similar like currents in Latin American literature of dealing with like, I guess what's called like magical realism yes. that, you know, kind of had uh, definitely when I was taking like English classes in the yes. 2000s that Gabriel was kind Garcia of a big Marcus thing very famous for magical realism i hadn't heard bolaño's name come up in connection with that but yeah i do remember you know of course Gabriel Garcia marcus i think is, is much more famous at least he was at the time maybe because i remember reading him yeah on recommendations you know from people mm-hmm. uh yeah uh, yeah so interesting to interesting to check out it sounds like there's some yeah. this there's is maybe some juicy stuff uh quote from the the translation this uh i guess this character uh writer in the book hans writer um goes to uh dracula's castle at one point what are you doing here at dracula's castle asked the baroness serving the reich said writer and for the first time he looked at her he thought she was stunningly beautiful, much more so than when he had known her. A few steps from them, waiting, was General Entrescu, who couldn't stop smiling, and the young scholar Popescu, who more than once exclaimed, Wonderful, wonderful, yet again the sword of fate severs the head from the hydra of chance. Soon they came, uh, so later on, uh, they take a tour of the castle, uh, led by an SS officer. Soon they came to a crypt dug out of the rock, an iron gate with a coat of arms eroded by time barred the entrance. The SS officer, who behaved as if he owned the castle, took a key out of his pocket and let them in. Then he switched on a flashlight and they all ventured into the crypt, except for Ryder, who remained on guard the door at the signal of one of the officers. So Ryder stood there, watching the stone stairs that led down to the dark and the desolate garden through which they had come, and the towers of the castle like two gray candles on a deserted altar. Then he felt for a cigarette in his jacket, lit it, and gazed at the gray sky, the distant valleys, and thought about the Baroness von Zumpf's face as the cigarette ash dropped to the ground, and little by little he fell asleep, leaning on the stone wall. Then he dreamed about the inside of the crypt. The stairs led down to an amphitheater only partially illuminated by the SS officer's flashlight. He dreamed that the visitors were all laughing, except for uh, one of the general staff officers, who wept and searched for a place to hide. He dreamed that Honesch recited a poem by Wolfram von Eschenbach and then spat blood. He dreamed that among them they had agreed to eat the Baroness von Zump. He woke with a start and almost bolted down the stairs to confirm with his own eyes that nothing he had dreamed was real. When the visitors returned to the surface, anyone, even the least astute observer, could have seen that they were divided into two groups, those who were pale when they emerged as if they had glimpsed something momentous down below, and those who appeared with a half-smile sketch on their faces, as if they had just been reapprised the naivete of the human race. Hmm. Yikes. Interesting. Yeah, Yikes. we don't know what was inside. No. No. That's from old Vevelsberg, Aquino kind of shit. Um, yes. going on there. Okay, so that, that, that's interesting. very interesting. Yeah, very, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll put that on the, the to-read bookshelf, um, you know, in the fiction category. I think sometimes fiction can get at these things uh, in a very complex way that, yeah. you know, We're, wouldn't discourage anybody from reading that. Yeah, I'd be uh, interested to read it myself. Uh, maybe at some point we will uh, mm-hmm. do a dive into that. Uh, seems yeah, very pinchy, yeah. which, okay. you know, is something um, that we've definitely been uh, meaning to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to read the next question? Kind of a hard pivot from hard the pivot. Arts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to hear the host's opinions on the labor theory of value. Is it right? 
What is value? Does it even exist? What are the implications of its being right-wrong for historical materialism and the critique of political economy? What are the implications thereof for the SJ worldview more broadly? I get a sense that Histmat is an important model for both hosts understanding history, but I also can't help but notice that much of the podcast is about the broader cultural effects of ideas and subliminal communication. Are you bourgeois idealists? Defend yourself against these charges. Um, all right. Uh, oh, that's the Hague ICC, by the way. So, wow, these charges are really coming from uh, high on high. Yep, yep. So, I mean, it, the labor theory of value, I mean, certainly I think that, like, a labor theory of value is pretty indisputable that like work produces, you know, things that often have like, uh, some kind of that have a, an axiological, you know, status. I think that there's, there's an axiological status to, to work pretty much universally, I would say in terms of like the labor theory of value as formulated by Marx in particular. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like the, economy has kind of changed i don't know like how i 100 percent feel about hmm, i don't know what do you think dimitri yeah i mean quite quite a uh a big old question to chew on right Mm -hmm. i mean like what do we think about the labor theory of value there's been so much said about it i tried to do some some just some reading or commentary whatever about it uh last night to kind of refresh myself on the different debates around it mm-hmm. i would say from my admittedly like very subjective personal perspective i feel like as because it can kind of be used i found an interesting monthly review article that uh, i think by an italian uh, marxist economist that was like breaking down different aspects of like how it's seen and i think he pointed an interesting distinction is like it it kind of is a few things at once or like to different people like for, on the one hand, it, it's kind of a theory of exploitation, of how exploitation occurs, basically. And, like, to boil it down to, like, very, you know, reductive language, it's, like, the labor uh, creates the value and then, like, the difference between, like, the use value and then the exchange value in the market is pocketed by the capitalists who own the means of production, right? Does that sound about mm-hmm. right? And I feel like as a kind of like fundamental like theory of oppression, I generally agree with it. And I think it kind of it holds up in kind of your like if you just observe the actual economy. And then there's also the kind of distinction between it as a macroeconomic theory and then a microeconomic theory. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that like also as a kind of actually I think this writer even uh, described it as a meta macroeconomic theory which I kind of like. And I I would say that on that meta level, on the kind of like uh, the the ontological explanatory power of like Marx's labor theory of value, I also ride pretty hard with like as a general overall like framework for like how the capitalist system works. Um, Now, when you get into it as like a microeconomic theory and you start to actually like formulate algorithms to like nail down I think there were a lot of attempts to do this in terms of like how do you like establish a mechanism for the price discovery like the true value of like an economy you know of a commodity I think you start to get in like very like tricky territory even under like more classical industrial capitalism and now today I feel like there are so many layers of like mystification layered on top of like the 
the core structure of capitalism, which still kind of functions more or less in the like in the dynamics that were laid out by like Marx and Engels that I, I don't necessarily think it's like the alpha and omega. I get a little bit frustrated when I see people who identify as Marxist, like really honing in on the labor theory of value, like talking about it to death and then feeling like nothing is real socialism unless like it validates like the labor theory. Like if you don't abolish the commodity form, like you're not socialist. And it's like, like, Okay, uh, th- that's an interesting debate to have, but I also, I'm a little more, you know, I was just talking shit about Trotskyists for being, like, kind of, like, emotionally, like, kind of driven by, like, their passions and, like, their are obs- almost, like, from an artist standpoint, but, like, I do kind of have, like, a fucking arts background, so, like, I kind of do approach it as, like, I don't know, from, like, I don't know. So I, I feel like getting into, like, the thorniness of, the mathematical thorniness of, like, uh, building, I don't know, like building an alternative structure that does like automatically distribute the exact like, you know, use of like labor, necessary labor time for a commodity. I, I wouldn't poo poo anybody for doing it, but I think the idea that you need to figure all that out before you can start using kind of Marxist heuristics in a kind of actionable way in the world, I, I, I think is kind of like a mistaken, like overly academic brained way of going about it. Cause I don't think you're ever going to just like find the algorithm or something. Then, then like, right, yeah. it's so like, complex. It's so abstract. And like, I, like I'm mm-hmm. not a, uh, I'm very much like a verbal brain person <laughs> basically. Um, and yes. uh, not a like, you know, but I, I think also like what, it, what appeals to me about, like the power of Marx and like the people in his tradition is that they break down these very abstract, like very complicated, uh, phenomena and like economic phenomena into like language that you can not only like grasp as like a normal person, but then kind of use it to go out in the world and actually like struggle for, for power or struggle against like the capitalist, class which i think at the end of the day is like if i don't know i mean i do think that at this point like a lot of the stuff in capital about the nitty-gritty of the labor theory of value is i mean let's just be real like it's not accessible to like it's difficult to understand like it requires like hard work it's dense and extremely like complicated and i you know i think that what you said again like i did not do like a refresher on capital before uh taking on this question uh, you know this is an example of us not like doing thorough research uh, to prepare for all these ep- uh, episodes but what do you say uh when you say it's many things to many people that strikes me as intuitively correct and that i don't even think that did marx even use the term the labor theory of value I think there's even I think there's a certain level of dispute over that to what extent he even advocated this as like this is the alternative like model that we should be. I mean, I think Adam Smith used it before Marx and maybe even Ricardo. So it's not just well, yeah, a Marxian that's like concept, there's a whole but, like debate of like, well, of course, it's not because like when you get to like you said, the macroeconomic level, it's almost axiomatic. Like I've heard like, oh, Ibn Khaldun, you know, invented the labor theory of value because he mm-hmm. said that 
labor creates value. You know, yeah, let me see. Uh, According to Ibn Khaldun, labor is a source of value. He gave a detailed account of his labor theory of value, presenting it for the first time in history. This is from... uh, uh, Ibrahim M. Owais. Ibn Khaldun's contributions later picked up by uh, David Hume in political discourses. It is worth noting that Ibn Khaldun never called it a theory, but had skillfully presented it in, uh, you know, his uh, Mukadima, you know, his uh, introduction to his, his history. Like what it comes down to, I won't read this entire thing uh, just for the length of the episode, but basically like the idea that labor creates value. Ibn Khaldun divided all earnings into two categories, rib, gross earning, and cusp, uh, earning a living. Rib is earned when a man works for himself and sells his objects to others. Here, the value must include the cost of raw material and natural resources. Cusp is earned when a man works for himself. Most translators of Ibn Khaldun have made a common mistake in understanding of rib. Rib may either mean a profit or a gross earning, depending on the context. So, like, some of the stuff is, like, on a certain level, like pretty intuitive. In fact, yeah, I that's the word I, I exactly I would use is like it has it makes an intuitive amount of sense. Yes, like on a macro level, and like that doesn't necessarily originate with Marx. The association between like the the axiological association between work and value. I think that like you know work is basically energy, and you know energy creates change, and change i don't know maybe is a form of value i mean this is all very like uh out in space but you know uh (laughs) oh excuse me yeah it's vulgar but you know what i really don't i mean we you know we're just gonna get like mobbed by like a million different factions of marxist episode thanks for the questions guys (laughs) yeah anyway um yeah thanks for like laying this minefield for us to walk into but why i do think that in terms of like the the bourgeois idealism thing one thing that i've said many times about marx but i'll reiterate is that i think that a lot of the stuff is built upon ideas and like really the like theatrical, you know, to go back to the ontology of performance uh, from Werner Erhard, the like uh, whole idea of which is so essential to like his formulation of how what you mentioned, like deconstructing the commodity form, the idea of commodity fetishism, which, you know, I find to be a bit of a problematic formulation anyway, like that really is based on like the idea of, character masks you know or like the you know the commodity coming on stage as a thing you know like before it is not but when it enters onto the stage you know it becomes it becomes something you know like that whole idea you know the table becoming alive like that that the disney brooms dancing exactly the dancing disney brooms and like all of that stuff like there isn't really an explanation of the commodity form that doesn't use that metaphor in fact he says it's necessary to draw an analogy to like the misty world of religion in order uh, to make this understandable or intelligible. He says that's, you know, needed. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that like there really isn't a formulation of commodity fetishism. It doesn't depend upon this kind of these allegories and metaphors or idealizations. And I don't know, like, I mean, my, one of my most fundamental takes on Marx and capital is that, it's more idealistic, you know, perhaps. But I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily use that in, I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, idealistic, like utopian. Um, I mean, in the sense of, you know, like quote unquote bourgeois idealism. But maybe I don't, I would not take the, I mean that in the pejorative way either. I don't think that giving attention to the 
material effects of ideas, you know, the power of words to change the world or, you know, yeah. something like that. It's, well, you know, I, I not... think that, I think sometimes it gets like mistaken because, you know, everyone from Marx to Engels to Lenin and so on, like loved railing and often I think appropriately loved railing against like bourgeois idealism and utopianism and things like that. But I think even, even with all that being true, these were people that spent probably the in Marx cases his entire career in the case of Lenin like up until really the last like 5 years of his life mostly writing articles and books and arguing with people basically using language and ideas to promote what he believed in now i think that what these kind of uh, these marxist revolutionaries that did succeed it was a they they ended up kind of taking action on behalf of their words but also it's like I don't know. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that they, they they backed up their words with actions or they attempted to uh, make their to implement their ideas in reality, in the material world. But I still think there's an aspect of like ideation, like even putting aside like idealism as a like a pejorative or anything like that. Like ideas clearly do are a part of this whole system of human society, like the propagation of ideas, the advancing of ideas and things like that. I mean, if it really wasn't, then like, I guess no Marxist would be on Twitter because what's the point? Yeah, so I think it, it's almost like so obvious that you, we do use ideas and kind of, um, I don't know, philosophical warfare <laughs> and debate and things like that and agitation, um, on a kind of like philosophical and political level uh, that uh, is obviously a critical part of like the Marxist tradition. But I think what kind of people like maybe Lenin were pointing out was to like just sit around and talk and then never want to actually do anything does become kind of a form of like idealism. And or just like we want to run like a DSA candidate. Well, or something. I also think you know? like the, you know, I mean, they, I think that it really was like, you know, an actual ontological debate, you know, not in like the broad sense of ontological that uh, might someone slip out, but actually it is ontological in that it was about like what was like uh, had ontological priority, what had foremost reality, you know, like I think that they were responding to like Hegelian idealism which yeah. was is really like the idea that like there is like a, a thought, a real, I mean, this really becomes like a, something that it has to do with theology in a certain way. Uh, Hegelianism is a very theological, basically like the, you know, the transcendental geist or like the world spirit. I can understand like the, you know, one could definitely readily understand the, the Marxian critique of this because it is basically the idea that, you know, uh, there is this, yeah, this transcendent geist that is like the driving force of the movement of history and Marxism and Marx, you know, actually I would just say Marx before like making any claim about Marxism, though I think many Marxists also, you know, critique that notion and say that, no, the world is driven by, you know, this whole, this idea of, you know, the, the idea of matter, you know, but I myself like, and I think, I don't know, maybe I am a little bit of a Hegelian in certain ways. I think that like it, there is certain, misreadings maybe of Hegel that come out, but I just don't, like, this kind of sharp distinction. I mean, 
we're kind of addressing ourselves. I'm, I'm addressing myself, I guess, the vulgar concepts of both where this distinction is being drawn. Uh, so I'm giving a, maybe a vulgar response, but the whole idea of like, oh, you know, it's all material or it's all like, you know, an idea enacting itself through, uh, you know, Alfhaven or whatever through history. I don't think that either of those uh, things are like the most satisfactory explanation. I think that both have a certain truth to them. I mean, just like, here's an example yeah. of, you know, this is like just from chapter one of Capital, right? Like, I, I think this is an interesting part. Uh, and I think this attests to, you know, this is, of course, in translation, but, uh, you know, a lot of people don't uh, read German. And uh, you can see how dense it is, but also you can see some of what I think, you know, we've been kind of talking about. Uh, in the production of the coat, human labor power and the shape of tailoring must have been actually expended. Human labor is therefore accumulated in it. In this aspect, the coat is a depository of value, but though worn to a thread, it does not let this fact show through. And as equivalent of the linen in the value equation, it exists under this aspect alone, counts therefore as embodied value, as a body that is value. A, for instance, cannot be your majesty to B, unless at the same time majesty in B's eyes assumes the bodily form of A, and what is more, with every new father of the people, changes its features, hair, and many other things besides. Hence, in the value equation, in which the coat is the equivalent of the linen, the coat officiates as the form of value. The value of the commodity linen is expressed by the bodily form of the commodity coat, the value of one by the use value of the other. And as a use value, the linen is something palpably different from the coat. As value, it is the same as the coat and now has the appearance of a coat. Thus, the linen acquires a value form different from its physical form. The fact that it is a value is made manifest by its equality with the coat, just as a sheep's nature of a Christian is shown in his resemblance to the Lamb of God. So... That, I mean, mm. I think that most of that, like, you know, to some will be relatively straightforward and easy to parse. I think that others may have some difficulty with it, certainly like hearing it read. You know, uh, I think that mm. if you're listening to an audiobook of that, some might have to rewind to like be honest, you know. Uh, I, so, yeah, but uh, I think that you can definitely see like, for instance, in the idea of like kingship that he brings up, you know, when he says A cannot be your majesty to B unless at some time majesty in B's eyes assumes the bodily form of A, but it changes, right? It changes, you know, the idea of your majesty takes on new features, right? So the value form is the form of the king and then, you know, it uh, the, the, the body actually ch uh, changes that is embodying that value. But... Mm -hmm you know, that's like a very lofty concept. And like the idea of simply making something like that go away, like majesty, like an idea of like charismatic authority. Like, I mean, I think that it's natural. Yeah. Like uh, we're Americans, you know, we have a Republican impulse, but like even in America, we have like a president, you know, an executive. It definitely has an aura of majesty around him, you know, that mm -hmm. accrues to POTUS. him. I mean, literally like, like the Latin, uh, well, I think it's one of the Latin derivatives for like power. Like, I mean, it, it, or it at least oh, that's closely echoes yeah, the idea. Yeah. Potence. Right. Like it, it echoes the Latin for, uh, um, yes. For power. Yeah, mm, exactly. Yes. So, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, the precedent he presides. Uh, but, 
Yeah, but um, also, I mean, if you just yeah. look at going, jumping up to like, okay, well, yeah, and what are the implications for like the SJ worldview and like, you know, historical I mean, certainly none of the actual existing socialism got away from the, they got maybe got away from the office of king per se, but they didn't get away from the idea of majesty or fathers of the people, you know? No, they didn't, uh, they, they didn't. Did I forget what book I heard people talking about um, on a podcast a while back. Maybe I've mentioned this before, but about the sort of like the cult of personnel around Stalin and how actually it wasn't necessarily like started by Stalin because he was a megalomaniacal sicko, but it was other people below him in the party that were trying to like kind of enhance outreach into the peasant population, in the rural peasant populations where there were still like high illiteracy, you know, that was eliminated of course within like 20 years. But, uh, but you know, at the time that you couldn't just go in like with a bunch of like, you know, like, a new atheist like uh bolshevik kind of you know missionaries and just like explain to them like das kapital and have them understand it so what some people ended up doing was hey remember how the czar used to have they used to have these like marches through the villages and people would hold up these icons with the picture of the czar on it and people would kind of venerate it and stuff well like what if we adopted that technology but like put stalin on it and make stalin kind of like the, the, the symbol, the father of the people that the czar used to be. And, you know, of course, all kinds of people could attack that for like, they're just perpetuating czar's tyranny. Like it's the same, but, uh, that ended up, that was kind of the root of where the idea of like having big, like banners of like Stalin everywhere. And honestly, I mean, Lenin, cause it was, it was that era of the government after he died that made Lenin into like the meme of like the USSR and kind of like the spirit, like almost like the spiritual father of the country. And to say that there's absolutely no kind of, um, I don't know that, that there's no kind of spiritual, social, psychological, like complex phenomenon with that in terms of like how you organize and motivate a society or, you know, even like Commandante Che on a t-shirt, you know, in Cuba, that image still means something. And, you know, even though he was an atheist and Lenin was an atheist. So I think that maybe we're trying to like dig a little deeper because there are like these, uh, these dynamics of human society and things like, and these like social technologies that, yeah, can like, that do have a certain power and they have a certain relevance. And, um, also, I mean, I don't know, like I, I've always felt, and maybe this is idealistic in the sense of being too optimistic for me, but I've always felt like if you can, if you can enlighten people to certain quote unquote conspiracy theories and you present it in like a materialistic way, um, generally speaking, and provide the context for why it happened, you actually stand kind of a good chance of like radicalizing people towards like the types of arguments that Marx is making in Capital about the labor theory of value. Because there's so much basically, you know, social conditioning going on in American society to make people not even think about the idea, even just the most base kind of uh, assumption of like the Marxist la labor theory of value that laborers create the value and then the capitalist basically takes it to the market and sells it for more than it costs to produce and then pockets most of the profits and then uses that pat and then through that process aggrandizes their own power so that they can basically subject the workers to a position of no power where, you know, basically I mean, Marx, I think accurately described like the reserve army of labor, like never paying higher wages than you absolutely have to, to keep people extending the workday 
beyond the necessary labor time to create a certain commodity, like the relentless drive for maximization of profit at all times. And to do that, you have to basically establish deeper control over your workforce. You can't give them quote unquote rights, basically. And so I think like if I don't know. I, I just think that, like, the way I just described it, I feel like American, like, I feel like every American understands, like, buy it for $1, sell it for 2 Like, that kind of basic mm-hmm. dynamic. And it's like, well, that's what capitalists are doing, but with all of our labor. They're buying our labor power, and they're selling the product of it, like, the, the raw materials plus the labor power, um, which creates a certain level of use value, and then they sell it for a certain exchange value on the market that is higher than that. And then, you know, they take the profit. Now, I don't know, maybe that's too vulgar. And I hope that doesn't make it sound like I'm like Richard Wolf just saying like, there should be worker own co-ops. And then the Mondragon Corporation, that's There's real Marxism. There's nothing the sun at the Hegelian dialectic where you'll vote. <laughs> For anything, just to make Antifa stop. But <laughs> yeah, but also like I mean, talk about like mind war, like like propaganda, like manipulation of information. People get like yeah. obviously these things play a part in no, the superstructure and, and yeah, and in like, Marx's have analysis, a I think impact. as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like, well, the, just kind of the format of the question of like, are you bourgeois idealists? Like, you know, I mean, I know it's facetious, like I'm not uh, that oblivious to sarcasm, but, uh, you know, the idea that like, oh, you know, by discussing this and talking about, quote, uh, the broader cultural effects of ideas and subliminal communication, I mean, Marx kind of did that as well. You know, he, uh, he saw that as being a very big feature of society. Oh, yeah, um, how, yeah. Like, the bourgeois actually, mystification of everything is like well, yeah, critical and, and even how, to like, the, the, ma- the maintenance of capitalism. Yeah, like, you how, have to lie to everybody. And how the disjunction between like the actual value and the you know uh, the use value and its va- value of a commodity, how that disjunction happens. You know, that's kind of the nature of commodity fetishism. Is the so you know I think that Marx's analysis and his ideas you know uh, and yeah he stands on the, so- the shoulders of giants you know there are definitely many <laughs> who have come before uh, perhaps you know literal giants but I think that you know his analysis like when people are like oh you know in order to realize like Marxism or to be like good Marxists we have to get rid of ideas or you know or like uh, <laughs> we have to like just be like like I, I don't even think people like. <laughs> Because the idea of materialism, like, again, like, many things in Marx, like, how well, you know, how doctrinaire are they, how, like, institute, like, you know, how formalized are, like, these concepts, like, it's much more complex than that. Like, in most intellectualist bodies of work, like, these concepts kind of, like, shift around when it becomes something like, you know, oh, you know, you're talking about gin, you're not you know, a materialist or something like, well, well I mean, we already went luck. through the how like, out there, it, like we already did a whole, we already did a whole episode yeah. on like Soviet parapsychology research. So like, are, are we the non-Marxist when like the Soviet government was looking at this shit pretty extensively? Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I mean, and I mean like, yeah, like, it comes it, down to the, like they the were scientific materialists. Asp- it comes back to the supernatural versus natural dialectic, which, like, you know, is kind of a, a vain distinction where, you know, they obviously would say, like, well, you know, psychic phenomena, if they exist, like, are part of the material reality. But, you know, in yeah. terms of, yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that ideas do have a materiality to them. I think that affect does have a certain, like, could be considered to have a materiality to it. Maybe that is, you know, uh, b- b- very bourgeois or trendy, but I do think that, I do believe that that is true, that there is a 
a certain materiality to the way that emotions can travel. I think that there is like or emotions, feelings and uh, subtle energies. You know, I think that like, you know, when a blood sacrifice is performed, like a human life is destroyed uh, in a, you know, a ritual or any context, you know, there can be like a release of energy uh, that is material. So I don't know. I mean, this is like a long tangent. Uh, I don't know if we defended ourselves. I think we maybe even dug ourselves deeper into the whole being bourgeois idealist, but I'm satisfied with Possibly, uh, my but comments. The last yeah. thing I'll say is that, yeah, like the mystification around like how value is like created and exchanged is kind of like the, it's like the original psyop of like the capitalist paradigm that like permeates everything. Like the mystification. Yes, he was very much a believer in, in psyops, Marx. You know, he was very much about like, you know, yeah. uh, uh, well, you know, he would be like, uh, you know, he was very uh, anti-religious, uh, despite maybe some uh, revisionist readings of his famous opiate quote. Uh, you know, he was very down on kind of the uh, religious justifications or the ideological justifications of, of capitalism. And he saw, you know, basically them as being psyops. Like, uh, I think we talked in our in one of our episodes about his essay on the 18th Brumaire of Napoleon III. Right, mm. where he goes deeply into this as kind of dialectic with Sterner as uh, mediated by Derrida. Sorry, I, I yeah, really interrupted yeah. you. You can uh, No, yeah. really. I mean, and even like you go to like Lenin in World War One, like calling out all the socialist parties in Europe for like pulling like an AOC and being like, Oh, we have to support our national governments right now. You know, and basically saying you're all full of shit, you're all renegades like Kautsky, and like the only position should be to like hope for the defeat of like all these powers and like all the soldiers like uniting together to, to like overthrow, you know, these like, uh, these sicko monarchs who are all first cousins, you know, I yeah, mean, you know. it's like that, that explanatory, that just like calling out. And I guess I, I hesitate to call it a heretical kind of tradition of like calling out the bullshit, but I feel like that's one of the things that like first attracted me to a lot of the, these like writers and like revolutionaries in the Marxist tradition was like the refusal to be fooled. And to call out, like, in kind of clear words, like, the explanatory power of these theories, even when they're just in, like, a broad sense. Like, they don't have to all get into, like, the, the ultra nitty-gritty about, like, which algorithm fully, like, nails the labor theory of value, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's really, I think, as a theory of exploitation and a kind of ontology of understanding, like, how power works, like... I think I think we want to be clear here that like we're not talking about like a one shadowy cabal is like running everything in the world. If we can just but we're also not saying there's a faceless then, maw. Uh, yeah, you know it's also it, not yeah, a it's not just like yeah. if we just find out like the who ten is sickos. in charge of everything. Yeah, who has done every conspiracy? <laughs> who is it? Who? No, no, no. Uh, this is like no. a multi, um, like a multinodal kind of a dynamic system with different players. But I think, like, still the category used by Marx and his adherents of like the capitalist ruling class is still a pretty functionally kind of accurate and like useful category. Like the people I that mean, own the capital, that call the shots, that own the productive forces, are the people that are more or less in the driving seat. And you know. Do they uh, also believe in like Freemasonic mystery religions and like do other shit like that? Well, some of them do. Apparently, they're all hanging out with Epstein and his fucking Sun Temple. So you know, even if they're not real, even I should stress that too. Even if it's not real at all, if they believe in it, it's worth paying attention to because who knows the mechanisms by which 
like that has an effect on people. Like, I mean, just think about like a bunch of psychopathic rich people, like human sacrificing somebody and like, you know, somewhere in the Virgin Islands, like even if there's like no such thing as a spirit world, there's no God, nothing else, like that has an impact on us. That that matters. You know what I mean? Like even if yeah. like regardless of like what they think they're getting from it, it I would guarantee it's not gonna be good. And if they have disproportionate power to like create policy and make economic moves that affect all of our lives and shape our society, then that is kind of relevant. And it kind I mean, of is maybe a little this beside is touching the point. On the, like I mean, maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm just getting triggered uh, because I'm you know so on the Sirat al Mustaqim by you saying you know even if there's no God. But to me, like this really is touching on the like uh, third rail of materialism versus like quote unquote idealism. Because to me, like just hearing that out loud, like is so patently ridiculous like the scenario the idea like oh you know what does it matter and i said that very emphatically like you know the connotation of materialism what does it matter for you to come and say like it's not real like it is real because reality is manifested by you know this is where i feel like these like i don't know it's very it's very complicated uh you know something uh distracted me in my immediate environment but i uh you know i i think that the way that these concepts work like when you talk about quote unquote like a spirit world you know for one a spirit world obviously be in- integrated with our world and like when we talk I about know. like god god is a name for something that yes. It's very, I think, I find very, dif- I very, very difficult to take seriously arguments that what God is a name for it does not exist. You can get into the specifics, but, and like, you know, I think that the type of existence that a spirit world would have is the type of existence that is already pretty much established by human beings' relationship with it. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to people. I hope it does. But like human beings' relationships with the spirit world already like basically constitutes the like reality of the spirit world and like the whole like hand-wringing of you're saying that even if it's like this very complex subtle kind of method of like psychological self-projection that has an impact on us but it's like really all like kind of psychosomatic it has a real enough impact that like even if that is the explanation, it has a reality in terms of like its impact on people. Yeah, like well, so I it mean, might as well. So it's kind like, of like if what's it's the just point this, it's just like, like you know the whole thing saying of like, it's oh, fake. Exactly, saying it's fake. The whole thing of it's just this, it's just that. You know, we've used this example many times. It's a good stock example. Is demon possession? You could even say an alien abduction. You know, if someone experiences this happening, like for you to say that oh, you know, this is because you have this, like, brain abnormality or whatever, like, epistemological framework you want to, like, put it in or something, that, to me, is not material. Like, what is material is, like, the experience and, like, the reality of the phenomena and its effect on the person and thus on the world. And, like, whether, you know, even things that only one person can see another person can't they're not less real than things that you know other people like in my opinion like i do not think that uh according to my like ontological framework i do not think that those things are are less real that's separate from 
the question of God, which I just feel like you cannot have a concept of reality, period, without God. Like, the whole idea of reality that is framing this entire conversation, that is another name for what God is. But, anyway, <laughs> uh, I was going to say before, uh, I was somewhat triggered by, like, this kind of attempting to uh, sort of, like, you know, uh, throw a bone to the people who I was who trying are, to like, throw upset. a bone to the I know the, you the, were, but I don't want to throw a bone to know. those people because they just need to get on board <laughs> with the chin that are out there. No, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but I just think that, like, that approach has, well, this is what I'll say, like, you know, this actually dovetails into what I was going to say, is that Marx's responses to Stirner actually are, like, perhaps an interesting, uh, or provide uh, an interesting approach to some modern-day Marxists, because Marx is, oh, Stirner's whole thing, as he's famous for, uh, among some people who get memed into being, like, egoists or whatever, is that everything was a spook, right? You know, yeah. religion's a spook, this is a spook, the only thing that's real is, you know, I, my ego, like, me. And Marx very astutely pointed out, like, that your ego, this I, is the ultimate spook. You know, that's, like, the ultimate, you know, Ooh. phantom that ideal that you've conjured up, you know. But And I think that that could be said about some modern-day Marxist idea of materialism, is that their idea of what materialism is may be a bit of a, uh, a phantom, you know. You mean if may- they're, like, a vulgar materialist? Um, like, or like a hardcore materialist that is just like, well, yeah, maybe a vulgar materialist or yeah, certain frameworks about materialism, people who are like materialism is about like how, you know, I don't know, whatever, like whatever people think uh, materialism is like, we have to believe in trust the science, et cetera. Like, you know, gin aren't real, like stop being, <laughs> you know, whatever, uh, yeah, erm, you know, we got yeah, the erm, yeah, that's, exactly. you know, yeah, the, ermies, uh, the, the greatest threat to the, you know, the greatest threat to socialism is, you know, religion or the Taliban or, you know, whatever. We need to, you know, go or back in there. conspiracy thinking. I've heard that yeah. bandaged about lately. That, you well, know, exa- the left well, really that's... needs to, like, hold the line on not getting sucked into crazy conspiracy well, theories. Well, yeah, well, like, that's ultimately, know, like that's Marxism. also, like, idealistic because it's all about broad social forces. Like, the, well, there's a great example. The Ma, <laughs> the faceless yeah. Ma. That is, like, a personification, like an allegory, like an idea, an image of force, like a, you know, that basically is is shaitan or a shaitan is the yes. faceless ma that is you know very very different from like you know i think that that's much more like of an idealistic formulation than saying like such and such group of people implemented this plot but people yeah. will say because of their idea of what materialism is that like oh it's actually more idealistic to say that like you know this group implemented this plot secretly than to say that everything is because of the churning maw of capital. You <laughs> That's know, actually like a good point. Let's, let's, flip it, let's flip it on its head right here. The Cthulhu um, people who that say, is capitalism. Like, you okay. know, that is really, you know, well, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to rescue the us out of this ditch, uh, by flipping uh, I don't think that's, that's possible. We're, we've dug people all the way say, down to the hollow earth now. No, straight like, up. Like people that say that 
the faceless maw of capitalism is like what produces everything in the world and there are never conspiracies of actual people and it doesn't actually matter what they do like you know basically like capitalism would just keep going if there are no people they are the bourgeois <laughs> idealists they are the I idealists. agree with you I very much yes. that's yeah that's exactly the they are the non-materialists because they are saying like Satan yes. fucking like basically like the satanic like invisible hand but they're also not saying Satan so they, they actually they're really putting themselves well what on I'm saying limb. yeah I'm also saying they need to just like accept the fact that they already believe in Satan and come on board <laughs> to the woke satanic panic. Uh, true, you know, true. And that Satan open. has his minions. Uh, yeah, he has you his know, minions. He speaks in the hearts of mankind. And, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, so like, I mean, that's the thing. Like none of these processes that Marx would describe would happen without human actors enacting them in the world. So, you know, or having the idea to enact them in the world. And of course, like that happens through a very complex socialization process, right? Like I wouldn't chalk it up to like human nature, some pessimistic bullshit like that. But, you know, I mean, that's Another why they send all their boys spook, to Groton uh, and Phillips yeah. Exeter and Yale and have them lie in the coffin and the skull and bones crib and get peed on, you know, for the rest of their lives so that they can be inducted into this kind of like weird mystery religion of like, international capitalism which i'm not saying it's literally a religion but they get kind of indoctrinated into it and then end up being the vessels through which it perpetuates itself in the world and it wouldn't and that involves conspiring you know like a systemic level of conspiracy on multiple levels probably like all the time like there's constant conspiracism going on within the capitalist system yeah there's something idealistic i mean like I say this uh, facetiously, sarcastically, uh, you know, by what I really mean to say is that capitalism is incredibly like full of ideas and invisible. Fo- you know, it works based on belief in many cases. You know, as we said before, like stocks rise and fall based on trust, confidence, iman. You know, on belief. Yeah, uh, it's like the it, it's like the the guy who turned over like Che's like comrades in Bolivia, being like, "Uh, the army came around here and they said that communists are just gonna like uh like like put us all in gray jumpsuits and and like steal our families and like make us slaves." And you know, I love freedom. And it's like, okay, well, like these guys just came in like psyoped this like peasant farmer and lied to him basically they successfully psyoped him to base and you know it's like Che Guevara constantly talked about how like you need to even if it means not erming people for believing in a witch bird you have to factor these things in because like human affinity like social feelings like all these things like matter and it's not just like economic output or like some kind of random thing like that, or it's not a system that's on autopilot. Like you need real strategists and shit, you know, basically to plot and plan, you know, especially when you have like competing, you know, factions or systems like trying to supersede you, you know, the 20th century was like a real Zenith of like competition. And I mean, it doesn't stop like capitalism, like lives to compete it's like in a competitive I mean, framework and again like so yeah it needs we're, to defend I mean, we're itself even now it defends itself you know it has right? an invisible hand you know like it like what like uh you know we live in a world where corporations like are considered to be people with rights yes. you know what does that even mean like True. you know the whole idea of like personhood 
is like thrown into absolute chaos like by that but we just like accept it like you know as a right well we're with these tulpas now these registered in delaware yeah, fucking tulpas. Yeah, tulpas so i think tulpas. that's also like the, the just as marx is using like the uh, this allegorical language to help like explain these concepts in a more lively like comprehensible way that's why we would call like the modern corporation like a tulpa and like i'm not necessarily like meaning that literally though eh, i don't know um you know at the same time it's kind of like a it's a fun thing to think about but or the idea that the invisible hand is kind of like satan or something like that it's like i'm i'm not necessarily saying that in like a literal way but if we are going to call capitalism it and just talk about it like it has its own will and it's like floating around in the ether like basically influencing everybody in like this very like indirect structural way then it's kind of like you know you can't you can't have it both ways like either embrace calling it satanic um as at least as an allegory or i don't know um or start admitting that real like business people and do conspiracies which they fucking do to me this is another false thing like of allegory versus like you know allegory really is like a literary term you know and you know, a lot of my ontology is based on, like, the Quran, you know, the which is a book and talks about allegory. And uh, something that I've mentioned elsewhere, uh, maybe on this podcast, maybe on others, is that maybe on You Can't Win, uh, talking to Tom, uh, you know, in the Quran, you know, uh, Allah will use the term ayat to refer to, you know, signs in nature, you know. And the sa- but the word, uh, the term ayat is also used for verses in the Quran. You know, I think that the world in some way, like the phenomenal world, has a certain, the nature of uh, creation, you know, of, uh, like, which is, you know, bound in our experience of it. You know, we process things through the layer of our body. You know, that is a uh, inescapable thing that our world is mediated by our body. You know, there's a cone of silence in the core of us and everything comes in through the sort of screen of our perceptions of our, our flesh, you know, as perhaps Merleau-Ponty would say. And I think that, you know, to say like, oh, Shaitan is an allegory, like, or he's real, like, I don't know. I feel like he's both and, maybe, you know? Maybe, mm-hmm. like, if we think about those things as being, you know, like uh, constructs or uh, creations, uh, creations that have a certain art to them, just like the world, the way the world could have like signs and symbols and meanings embedded in it, then that's like a way to, to understand those things. I mean, this is like, you know, something that, uh, you know, two things that are very traditionally incompatible. But I think that like, as we talked about before, it is a uh, big blind spot in like for anyone to be like, oh, you know, step one to Marxism or a necessary step to like achieving my revolutionary goals is to get rid of all idealism and that includes people who believe in god or witch birds or what have you you know like you need to have the humility to consider that you might be wrong about the witch bird and there may in fact be a witch bird otherwise i i and jay agree with you yes yeah Um, exactly
Any thoughts on the notion that Lady Gaga killed Lena Morgana as a money ritual in order to jumpstart her rise to stardom? Did she use bourgeois showbiz magic to steal Morgana's talent, aesthetic, and sound? There's a lot of dracularity surrounding the whole thing. This video looks like a deleted scene from Inland Empire. They posted uh, Lena Morgana singing My Angel, an old YouTube mm -hmm. video. Uh, my follow-up question would be, do you have any thoughts on money ritual and or vampiric celebrity talent theft as a practice more generally? All caps. Did Salieri kill Mozart? Well, putting aside uh, that question for a second, um, are, you, are you familiar? Had you ever heard of Lena Morgana at all? I had not. Uh, we talked about it a little bit like before this episode, but prior to that, I had not heard of Lena Morgana at all. Yeah. I, I looked into this a little bit. I hadn't heard of her either. I looked into it a little bit when this question was first uh, posted in Discord. And, yeah, it is a kind of strange little tale that I had never heard before. But there has been, you know, press coverage of it. Basically, for anybody that doesn't know, Lena Morgana was a young performer. I believe she was born in Russia and came over here as a kid. And was trying to start a career in the music industry as a teenager in like the mid to late 2000s. And as part of that, she eventually ended up coming into contact with another young performer, Stephanie Germanotta, better known, better known as Lady Gaga. And um, their producer, I believe his name was um, Rob Fusari, uh, who was working with Lena Morgana first, but then also started working with Lady Gaga, I think when she was still an NYU student. And then they all worked together for a while, and I think they they wrote like 10 or 11 songs together. But then around the time of 2007 and 2008, it appears that that was when Lady Gaga blew up, and she had her first album, The Fame, had a few hit singles, and in that time, like, it seemed like Lena Morgana's fortunes kind of, like, she was supposed to have a record deal and, like, a special on MTV and all these other things, and they all kind of started to dry up. And then in 2008, Lena Morgana reportedly died after falling off the roof of the Staten Island Hotel in New York. And I guess there's always been some debate about whether she accidentally fell or whether she committed suicide. But, um, yeah, basically, and then in the couple years after that, when Lady Gaga became this, like, huge superstar, I believe Lena Morgana's mother, uh, the mother... It's um, interesting that she said uh, Lady Gaga is holding Lena Morgana's soul. Yeah, that is weird. She's I just saw that, yeah. Soul. And you she know, says, I mean, yeah. With uh, Just to, like, you know... Uh, leaving aside like the you know to, to i'll take a skeptical stance since i was just ranting about uh how everyone needs to believe in gin um you know i do empathize a lot with the mother because like if you're the mother of like a young aspiring uh musician or, or singer or vocalist and then you know she tragically dies and then you see this young person who reminds you of her in some way and she's like having all this success like i can understand how that would be you know just you know, I could see my own mother becoming, like, outraged, like, if, I don't know, uh, I died tragically, and then there was, like, some super successful, like, conspiracy podcaster, like, I don't know, uh, who's Muslim, I don't know, <laughs> like, uh, I could, yeah, I just, yeah, I, you know, I just had a twinge of, of empathy for someone, like, going through that, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, no, you know? definitely, definitely, um, and I mean, 
Well, you know, people really jumped on what she said, though. Um, to read the whole quote here that she told the Gothamist, I believe, in... Uh, no, the New York Post, she told us in 2010. She said she has no plans to file a lawsuit. She simply wants her daughter to get her due. Quote, I'm doing this because I want to keep her spirit alive. Lady Gaga is holding Lena's soul, and I want her soul to be free. Every other word Gaga says is from Lena. She talks about having a dark and tragic life, but she had everything she wanted in the world. She went to the same high school as Nikki Hilton. Her parents were rich, but Lena did have a tough life, and she often talked about her tragic life. So, you know, it says, after Fusari introduced both of them, Lita and Gaga wrote about a dozen, dozen songs together, all recorded but never commercially released. Uh, Yana claims that, quote, Lena had that style. Gaga had a different style. She changed dramatically overnight. Tragically, Lena took her own life by jumping from a hotel in Staten Island, and one month later, then Stephanie Germanata made her transformation into Lady Gaga. Lena's former boyfriend said the first time he saw the transformation, he was shocked. He told the paper, quote, It was the same style, the same look, the same music, the same voice, the same jawline, the way they expressed themselves. It was so, so shocking. It was like looking at a ghost. Hmm. Well, you know what? I, I definitely know what they're talking about. I remember seeing, like, years ago when Lady Gaga, like, first came out, somebody, I think, showed me a video of her when she was still, like, an NYU student, like, playing it, I don't know, on the Lower East Side at, like, these tiny little venues. And I, like, I think it's almost been forgotten today that, like, when she was first running around trying to make music, she... God, I remember saying that it's like, oh, she looks like like Alanis Morissette or something. She's wearing like kind of like a, you know, a uh, like a flannel like shirt and like jeans or hair is just black and maybe like in a ponytail or something. Like it was very just normy like 2000s kind of, you know, indie right, singer songwriter yeah. girl. And it wasn't until, I guess, one month after Lita Morgana died that they made this decision to completely overhaul her style in this, like, wild, kind of, like, like drag queen kind of a party girl sort of thing that, you know, is the Lady Gaga we know today. So I guess, you know, I mean, putting aside the whole thing about, like, did she steal her soul in a money ritual... I, uh, the music industry is a shady fucking place. And I think that is definitely when the possibility of something happening. Now, the question of like why that would happen, why would Lady Gaga get to be sort of picked? Like if we're assuming Rob Fusari is the kind of um, immediate puppet master here, the uh, handler, mm -hmm. if you will, who gets to introduce either one of these girls to the industry it's curious to know like what made him kind of do this hard pivot when like, if you watch a few of her performances, Lena Morgana's that are on YouTube, she did seem to be very talented. She had kind of like this Amy Winehouse kind of, you know, like tragic young diva kind of energy. And of course, you know, that just like backs up like, Oh, she died right around the time Amy Winehouse and like the pressures of fame. Like, you know, she had to jump off the thing, but I don't know. I mean, you could see maybe all kinds of possibilities. Like, was she so upset that, like, her identity was getting, like, maybe she found out that Lady Gaga was planning on, like, appropriating her entire style and, like, routine and, and her own, like, producer, who was the person she thought was going to make her uh, famous, was going to run off at Lady Gaga and make a bunch of money. I mean, I feel like that types of... 
kind of shady bullshit happens all the time. I mean, was there something else that, like, she did or didn't do? Not to get too speculative, but, like, that she didn't do that pissed off people and decided, like, we're not going to let you, you know? I don't know. I don't really know. Um, I mean, Lady Gaga, independently of this story, definitely is somebody that, like, Vigilant Citizen was on the Lady Gaga is oh, sus tip sure. like, a very imagine. long time ago. And it, I mean, there's some things in her, I think it was from her second album. I forget what video it was, but it's basically like she's this kind of like human android who gets taken to like an international like slave market and all these like Euro terrorists, like businessmen or like smoking cigars are like bidding on like these different like robot women to like buy them. It, I mean, it's got these, like, creepy fucking vibes to it that are the, in typical fashion. I'm sure people, some people hear this right now and be like, uh, Satanism was a thing since the 80s and people were just riffing on that. It doesn't mean anything. But she was not just, like, doing things that were kind of dark or occulty, but also in this kind of, like, transhumanist kind of way. Like, there were a lot of these themes worked into, like, her uh her videos when she was kind of at her peak and so and you know the mother is right she is a rich girl i forget which prep school she went to but she was like a rich manhattan girl this is uh yeah this is actually a funny article that i came across uh speaking of you know trying to find the one conspiracy the actual tagline of this website uh which is uh henrymacow.com Oh, he's uh, a, that's a spicy source right there. They're, they're ta- um, right, you're uh, yeah, going into tagline, anti-Semitic territory. Um, sure. Yeah. His tagline is, uh, there is only one conspiracy. Uh, and he, you know, uh, is definitely a Lady Gaga murder pilled. Uh, he said, did Lady Gaga have a rival murdered? And his subtitle is, um, anyone versed in satanic rituals, of the music industry knows that superstardom is reserved for those who murder or take part in the murder of a lover, parent, or sibling. So was she, I guess, her lover? I don't know. It says, uh, Lena Morgana collaborated with Stefani Germanotta during 2007 until falling 10 stories to her death in October uh, 6th, uh, 2008. This wasn't a secret, though the media is broadcasting it now since the girl's Russian immigrant mother has come out saying, Lady Gaga is holding Lena's soul and I want her soul to be free. Uh, You know, he repeats his subtitle. Lena Morgana and then this is a great, a witch name, was on the verge for her, of her own music career taking off. Lots of images of her music are available on YouTube. Hmm. When I compared Morgana's recording Wonderland with Gaga's Wonderland with a U. Mm. Um, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, uh, there's also a lot of casual, like, kind of dressing up like a sexy SS dominatrix shit kind of happening speculating on that, uh, Lady Gaga's career. Between the autumnal equinox and Samhain, uh, that, you know, uh, since it was on October 4th, uh, some articles say six. So, but I feel like you can't say it was in between, like everything's in between two occult dates. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, Mark, how. Okay. Um, I don't know, but I, I will throw this out just a little tiny tidbit here. I don't know if there's really anything to it, but <clears throat> you know, I always have to wonder about these record producers because I feel like you know, there's, like, five of them that seem to basically monopolize, like, the entire music industry. Like, you know, nowadays, of course, we think about, like, Dr. Luke, who has a pretty fearsome reputation in the industry. Um, you know, Kesha yeah. trying to, like, sue him and shit mm-hmm. like that, and the judge threw it out. Um, but it's a guy, I think he, he produces under a lot of, like, pseudonyms now, but he's basically still kind of, like, running the show. And he was a protege of Max Martin, right. who's, the, like, the 
uh, I think Swedish guy who did yeah. Ace of Base and then did like the Backstreet Boys and Sync. That whole late '90s, like Britney Spears, and we know how sus that was. Was literally like a subgenre created by a pedophile, like business fraudster, you know, Lou Pearlman in Orlando, and you know, which is where Nickelodeon was, Dan Schneider, et cetera, et cetera. So okay, you know, this is this is a, a fucked up. This could be a fucked up industry, especially at the like teenage girl pop star level. But I was just, you know, looking at Rob Fusari's, um, you know, Wikipedia article, which is not very long for somebody who's like a multi-Grammy nominated record producer and songwriter who's done songs with Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, Will Smith, Whitney Houston and Lady Gaga. Uh, I guess he's known as 8-Bit, you know, as kind of like his stage producer name. And it says all it says about his early life is he was born between 1967 or 68 or 1976, depending on the source, and raised in Livingston, New Jersey. A child prodigy, Fusari won numerous piano competitions at Radio City Music Hall at eight years old. Okay, so just saying he's a gifted child and they don't even know when he was born. Like the fact that they don't know if he was born in like 1967 or 68 or 76. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Why is this guy so mysterious? And I guess he... Articles differ on the date of the death, too, right? Yeah, and she actually sued him, I think. um, Yeah, he wrote Bootylicious and Wild Wild West by Mm. Will Smith, you know, and and Destiny's Child. And, of course, you know, we just talked on the Trillbillies a little bit about Jay-Z and Beyonce and and their, uh, like, general vibes. Um, And... It's just strange that, like, this guy, I don't know, like, he, yeah, he launched Destiny's Child's career with the the hit No, No, No um, in the late 1990s, and I guess he kind of, yeah, he was the main producer on Gaga's Grammy-winning debut album, The Fame, you know, he's credited on Paparazzi, Beautiful Dirty Rich, Again and Again, Brown Eyes, and Disco Heaven, and he started... He's still signed to Sony ATV Publishing, but I don't know. Like, he hasn't really done anything after Lady Gaga. I mean, he did, like, one um, Fifth Harmony song in 2015, Brave, Honest, Beautiful. And that was, it looks like, about it. Like, he didn't work on her subsequent albums or anything like that, but he was, like, this strange child prodigy who found both these girls. I see a picture of him with Britney Spears. I think in his uh, glory days and yeah, I don't know. I mean, he might just be, uh, he might just be like a talented piano player or something, but it is strange. I wonder, oh, cause also, okay. Lady Gaga was signed to Interscope records and I'd love to circle back around and do like a whole exploration of, um, of Interscope Records one day. I don't know. If you could do me a favor, call it, and just look up the Wikipedia of Interscope Records real quick, or the mm-hmm. logo, the classic logo of it. Okay. Is that the first... Oh, I see. It, because of the <laughs> spiral? Is that um, what... Yeah. yeah, it's a big spiral. It's a big spiral. I don't know what it means, but that... You know, well, okay. this is just you know a spiral, right? Like, you know... Uh, I mean, I know. What, what, it's not a triangle like a spiral. spiral. Yeah, I mean... 
the there are some cases of that triangle spiral like the drake bell t-shirt where it's like you don't want to be you know i'm generally yeah. pretty skeptical yeah. of like spotting out the triangle spiral but like that one was just like too much where it's like you know you can't really uh even if it is a coincidence like you don't want to say be the one saying it's coincidence it's just too fucking much uh yeah but yeah. i don't know about that i mean i guess you know yeah it's a spiral it's not a triangle spiral spirals are pretty yes. popular you know uh icons sure sure but that that's just really where it starts because like interscope records was really one of the most like influential record labels of i would say like the 1990s and the 2000s with like during really like the reign of like the mtv era you know they acquired the exclusive rights uh in 1992 for death row records so they were very big in promoting like that Suge Knight's like particular style of gangster rap in the 90s and also you know the company itself was founded by Jimmy Iovine who's now you know such a big deal he's already already creeped me out a little bit or always creeped me out a little bit but also Ted Field and for anybody that doesn't know I don't think we got to spend a lot of time on them in the maybe the first part of uh, the Gustavus Myers series history of the great American fortunes but Ted Field is from is an heir of the Marshall Field fortune from Chicago, and they are the family that owned you know the department stores and then later the Chicago Sun Times, and so he I think I don't know is a uh, he's the son of Marshall Field the fourth who owned the Chicago Daily News, and um, came out to Hollywood and started working you know as a producer and then he founded Interscope Communications with a guy named Robert Court who's a big studio executive back in the 70s 80s and 90s who coincidentally started his career working as the personal assistant for William Colby at the CIA just throwing that out there anyways Interscope Records was spun in 19 uh 1990 it was spun off with Jimmy Iovine and Ted Field as a joint venture with Atlantic Records and Warner Music Group, which is basically, as we, I think, went over in, like, our Eagles episode and others, was actually, like, the McKinney parking lot company that was, like, like some kind of cutout for Meyer Lansky's, like, mafia network that went and bought Warner Communications in the 70s and then merged with, I believe, uh, Time Life in 1989, where, God, there's, like, so much to go with, where, like... Doug Lyman's dad um, helped Steve Ross like convince all the Blue Blood Wasps at Time Life to merge with Warner, creating Time Warner. Anyways, um, so they went off, I guess, in 1995. They cut to their ties with Time Warner, but then they went on to like basically produce really some of the edgiest acts of like the 90s. They were really big, I remember, in like rap metal. I think they did Limp Bizkit. I'm pretty sure they did Corn like Smash Mouth, um, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, like some of the really like darkest, like edgiest, like mainstream music, Eminem, of course, um, and stuff like that. And I would say that uh, they even got into it with like MCA, which has a whole nother like sus thing. And actually Geffen got involved. Yeah, because Geffen owned, or uh, MCA owned Geffen Records, I believe by this point. And then Geffen Records is actually merged into Interscope in, I think, 1999. So now, like, it's Interscope, Geffen, A&M Records to this day. So just all kinds of Geffen connections, you know, popping up. But uh, I think then, you know, it might almost be, like, the last big star that they rolled out that they had a huge success with was 
Lady Gaga in 2008. So I've just noticed, like, this is very, you know, maybe non-scientific or, like, anecdotal or whatever, um, that, like, the Interscope artists, I feel like in their videos, have, like, a higher Vigilant Citizen score than oh, maybe some yeah. of the other record labels. I definitely like, not think to say so. that they're in not fact, sus, but... Well, I think that, like, Vigilant Citizen actually has said that <laughs> about Interscope, I think, if I'm, yeah, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Well, uh, he, I think he has, because, I mean, he points out, obviously, to, like, the spiral on their logo and stuff like that. But, okay, real quick, uh, I just found this. I did not know this, but anybody who's saying that, like, I'm not being serious right now and I'm just, like, <laughs> making a bunch of ridiculous accusations, <laughs> um, blah, blah, You're blah. You're smearing about, people without any proof, but, you know, yeah, we well, how, like, how really say that proof? it was true. Anyway, what? Yeah. How's this for... An interesting proof from The Smoking Gun from 2011. Cocaine ring used music label to ship drugs, feds, pickups and deliveries made from Interscope. Members of a narcotics ring that sent large amounts of cocaine and cash back and forth across the U.S. in music, quote, road cases arranged pickups and deliveries at the offices of Interscope Records, a music industry power whose roster includes artists like U2, Eminem, and Lady Gaga, according to federal investigators. Department of Justice prosecutors this week provided defense lawyers with shipping records detailing pickups and deliveries made at Interscope's Los Angeles office by a cargo firm that was used to transport the music cases, which which were alternately stuffed with kilos of cocaine and upwards of $1 million in cash. A year-long DEA investigation has resulted in the indictment of James Rosemont on 18 felony charges, which could result in a sentence of life in prison for the 46-year-old rap music manager. Rosemont, pictured in a below mugshot, is being held without bail in Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center, the same place where El Chapo and Epstein slipped and hung himself. Uh, in a letter sent this week to Rosemont's lawyer, Prosecutor Todd Kaminsky disclosed that investigators were turning over an assortment of discovery material that included 65 pages of records from Rocket Cargo, a large freight forwarder whose client list includes scores of musical acts. Kaminsky noted the, the Rocket documents were, quote, specifically referencing pickups and deliveries at Interscope Records and a recording studio on Manhattan's West Side. While it is unclear how members of the narcotics ring would have had access to Interscope Santa Monica headquarters, Rosemont's biggest client, Los Angeles rapper The Game, records for the label. Additionally, the smoking gun has learned a road manager for The Game has been implicated in the bi-coastal trafficking ring. Interscope is a division of Universal Music Group, the world's largest music company. UMG itself is owned by Vivendi, the French media conglomerate. Prosecutors and DE agents have been provided detailed insider accounts of the drug trafficking ring by former Rosemond associates who have admitted their role in the operation. Several of these cooperators have described how they were dispatched to either Interscope or various music studios to retrieve road cases stuffed with either cash or cocaine. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, that's pretty interesting. Rocket Cargo. You know, I don't know. They're just, like, trafficking. I, I think they, they're kind of trying to make it sound like, oh, it's just this, like, renegade rap manager that was doing it under the nose of Interscope Records. But really makes you wonder about, you know, even going back to the 70s, how all these, like, Geffen label stars always had, like, tons of cocaine, even though it was, like, $600 a gram or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, what kind of fucking business... What kind of other businesses are they involved with on top of just music? And I don't know. Like that. So, 
You know, obviously uh, that doesn't mean that like they're Satanists who kill people in money rituals or anything like that. Well, but it shows I have you there's to a, say, a blurry I line was, of criminality here. I was checking in on Vigilant Citizen, you know, on his webpage because it's relevant and I've, I'm always curious to see what Vigilant Citizen's up to. I haven't been to the site in a while. And, you know, I happen to notice that one of his uh, marquee articles published four weeks ago is about uh, a new uh, pop artist who I hadn't heard of, uh, Shen Sia. I'm pronouncing that right. She wrote a song called Run Run or, you know, performs a song called Run Run. Vigilant Citizen, I'll just read what he has to say because, you know, there's no okay. uh, there's no uh, paraphrasing any of this. When I write about a new artist that's suddenly popular, I usually briefly describe the path that led them to the mainstream media. And from one artist to another, the path is strikingly similar. First, the artist is unsigned, but has a sizable following and is generating quite a buzz. Well, that's pretty normal, but... Uh, then the artist gets signed to a major label, often Interscope Records. Literally, that's what he wrote. Uh, so he, he has noticed, and everything changes. The artist suddenly starts making the one-eye sign-in photo shoots and releases a ritualistic video filled with occult symbolism. Uh, Shensia, a popular artist from Jamaica who was crossing over to the mainstream, followed this exact path. After releasing remixes and collaborating with popular artists, including Sean Paul and Christina Aguilera, Sean Sia's notoriety grew in Jamaica and across the world. In 2019, Sean Sia signed with Interscope Records. Shortly after, things got very ellipsis occult elite. Uh, her profile pic on Instagram is now a one-eye sign. Uh, no. She, In a recent photo shoot, she makes an unmistakable one-eye sign. But what's interesting, actually, is that similar to Lady Gaga... A few months after signing with Interscope, Shensia's mother died unexpectedly, an event that was widely mediatized in Jamaica. While several artists showed her support, intense rumors circulated that Shensia sacrificed her mother for fame. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, like, you know, uh, money rituals are something that's widely uh, believed in and, you know, and in fact is widely practiced uh, due to the belief in it, uh, you know, in, sort of uh, in line with what we were saying earlier. So I guess in a way kind of, uh, makes sense that these rumors would emerge whether or not they're true, but it is interesting that, uh, you know, this is uh, playing out again, this whole idea. And it is odd, you know, I am looking at Vigilant Citizen, and of course, you know, it's Vigilant Citizen, you know. We do not agree with everything he's Vigilant very Citizen histrionic, But I feel like he has a little bit of a point, like, about, like, I don't, like, uh, you know, he has this one sentence where he says, in Run Run, uh, Breslauer, uh, took innovative steps on making the video about ellipsis a guy being tortured and sacrificed there's also lots of imagery that's reminiscent of little nos x's montero or montero yeah. sorry where he literally descends into hell in short run run is not about quote-unquote art it is about forcing the exact same imagery down the throats of people shensia was simply chosen to bring that crap to jamaica so you know, I do think that he has a point where, like, the imagery of these videos, like, has gotten to, like, pretty repetitive. Like, are people really, oh, yeah. like, you know, like, the whole thing that, like, you know, oh, like, do you understand art? Like, aren't you bored of this? Like, I mean, I don't know, like... Yeah, I'm looking at screenshots from the video right now. Yeah, it it's really very... it really is, like, in your face. Yeah, laying like, it on thick, you know, he's holding, like, his uh, heart. She's, like, licking a sacrificial dagger. You know, like Michael Aquino's SS dagger. Yeah, I think it's there, actually... He's, like, in a, a cage. Yeah, he's I literally don't... being, like, strapped to an altar before, like, being yes. sacrificed. She's, like, mm -hmm. floating on the altar in hell above, like, a bunch of lava, dressed up kind of with, like, devil horns on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean... Uh, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, like who's asking uh, for in this? the garden? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> and obviously, like, I'm sure she didn't come up with this. 
like yeah. someone. They might have even hired the same dude who like directed uh, Lil Nas X's video. I don't know. I hope I'm not insulting. Anybody. I think it like, was. You know, I think it might have actually been a woman, and I, I found oh, a company sorry. that does that on uh, Instagram. Oof. Yeah, so you need oof. to check. Yourself. Uh, I can't believe um, I just did that. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, if you look at, it's interesting. If you look at, he does quote like Buzz Caribbean, and how there's like headlines there, and there's like rappers in Jamaica that are totally saying that like she sacrificed her mother to like be famous in America because I think there is on average like a lower bar. I, not a lower bar, but like there's more openness to that kind of concept. Those concepts oh, are not sure. so yeah. ermy mm-hmm. and foreign in uh, in Caribbean countries that no. you know. The, yeah, the, yeah. Like I mean, around the world, so it's actually um, it's actually Western and chauvinistic to like erm everybody who ever says that like you know people do devilish rituals and shit but oh, i don't know i, I mean I, this I, is yeah. like widely believed in in all sorts of places you know including in uh, parts of the united states like it's you know widely held belief and yes it is quite uh western chauvinistic and colonial to be incredibly dismissive of it but yeah i think i mean i just i just do i do find it odd i mean obviously it gets attention you know, we're talking about it now. Then again, we are a podcast about like uh, the occult and, uh, you know, these type of conspiracy theories that, that float around and uh, media symbolism is one of our, you know, uh, perennial topics. But, you know, so it is attention getting. But I mean, not that we're someone who you'd really I don't know, like why? Like why? Why this? Like over and over and over. Like surely anything know. with like an attractive woman, like being like naked would get like, you know, a fair amount of attention. Like, I don't know. I mean, and there are music videos about other subjects, but like, why? Like, I don't know. I well, mean, I'm, I'm just clutching right my now. pearls. I know uh, you're you clutching know, your pearls. I'm looking prude. at Christian Breslauer, uh, who only, his only like press photo is like a trendy picture of him, but like with his face completely like beaten up and like bandaged, like he just got jumped or something. And it's so annoying. It's like the same bio is everywhere you look. It's like Christian Breslauer is a young, ambitious director, writer, and cinematographer. He cuts his teeth on telling authentic and compelling stories. His visual style is bold and gritty. Christian was born in South Florida, uh, where he built his name in the streets, shooting for some of Miami's hottest artists, following in the steps of his idol, David shot Fincher. For Felix Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's just rocking. I don't even know how old this guy is, but, you know... He moved to L.A. in 2016 to create premium content for premium artists. He's collaborated with Marshmello, Roddy Rich, Jason Zerillo, Little Baby, um, and uh, I think Chris Brown. And, yeah, so he made Industry Baby. He did B.B. Reja's Sacrifice, which I think also has, like, sacrifice themes. And uh, Industry Baby is, I guess, not, oh, yeah. it takes Actually, place in Vigilant a prison. Citizen was complaining about that in the same... Uh Wow, actually, yeah, he directed Lil Nas X's Industry Baby and Sacrifice, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, Vigil Citizen was saying that that was also, you know, about a guy being tortured and sacrificed while Rexa drinks his blood. Yeah, so, there, like, that, that's really interesting. There's, like, no information really uh, on this guy. Wow, this guy's, uh, like, profile, like, you know, his personal website is, like, a QAnon, like, dream slash nightmare. Uh, He's like his personal like picture is like him beaten up like he's like yeah I told you yeah I just said that I just said that yeah his it's like he's been jumped or something and yeah yeah. well you've heard that thing about like the Black Eye Club or whatever you know yeah like what was uh, the Black Eye Club oh it's like a thing like you know people will post pictures of like. I don't know, like Obama having like a black, like, you know, or looking like he has a black eye or like, or George Bush looking like he has a black eye or like say like, oh, you know, they, they bunch each other in the eye or something. It's some kind of thing where they're all like in a group together and it involves like, 
having a black eye. So yeah, it's not, yeah, uh, no, I, but I just looked at the picture myself now and like, it's in particular, yeah, it looks like one of those type of things. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he's done a lot of videos and they all look like they have like some kind of scary demonic thing happening in them. Uh, not gonna obviously watch them all now, but it's almost like he just popped up out of nowhere and starts getting like these jobs to like, yeah, I'm looking at Sacrifice by Bibi Reja. She has vampire teeth. And then, like, the other video um, by her, she's standing in front of, like, a burning building sabotage in, like, a dark gown. Like, okay. It's like, so, you know, I don't, like, yeah, who like, is this guy? You know, <laughs> like, I don't I mean, know. I've I'm seen like, plenty of, like, music videos where it's just, like, you know, the young uh, starlet just, like, writhing on, like, a couch. Maybe those don't get as much attention, but, like, you know, not that I think that those are, like, wholesome or valuable for society. Sorry to be uh, prudish, but I really don't think that these have, like, that much artistic value. You know, no, like, you can say that, like, behind it's behind them. Yeah, you can say that, like, it's irrelevant and, like, you know, you're clutching your pearls, but you cannot tell me that that is artistically interesting or valuable. So I just don't get the point. Like, you know, uh, I don't get the point of defending it. I don't get the point of, like, making it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. there's, and, and it's there's like an every audience one of these for it, but I feel like it kind of was created by, like, I feel like it's not the, I feel like it's the chicken and the egg, and I feel like the, the in this case, it was the chicken of the videos before the egg of the audience, uh, you know. Uh, no, true. I mean, yeah, well, you know, who's, who's downstream from who, really, you know? I mean, I think it's, a, like, it's a dialectic, but, you know, there's going to be, like, million. These are the biggest stars right now. Like, he just did a Doja Cat video where uh, she plays a man-catching spider. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and also his world. his first credit, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. He has almost 30 credits and they start in, ni- in 2019. So in the last two years, including like during COVID, he's made like 30 music videos for some of the biggest names like in music. And his first one credited is for uh, Trippy Red under mm-hmm. Enemy Arms. And I think we probably brought up Trippy Red as one of these young rappers that maybe Busta Rhymes is like, you know, warning, uh, to stop acting <laughs> right, so yeah. like trippy red, you know, like a, like three red sixes or something, you know, but it's just, you know, God talk about occulted, like the music industry is so shady and who knows, this could be like the rich kid of some like international arms dealer. I have no fucking clue, but there's like no information on him at all. He just popped up out of nowhere and now is like doing all these satanic videos for everybody. And like Interscope is just throwing money at him. You know, I mean, the, the, honestly, the, the Miami music scene is just sus. And uh, so I think I think Vigilant Citizen is not wrong uh, to point this one out. But, um, you know. yeah, I mean, Vigilant Citizen's like a little bit out of his mind, but I can kind of understand how this stuff like just drove him out of his mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. You know, yes, exactly. yeah. Exactly. You can't um, prove it. But he's uh, also concerned yeah. that a 1963 list of uh, current communist goals is becoming a reality right before our eyes right now. <sighs> Exactly. So. Yeah, that's why we say, like, we do not endorse everything Vigilant Citizen says. He is an evangelical Christian, which we are not, by the way, for anyone listening. We are yes, not we're emphatically not Christians. We're not Christians. Uh, uh, I'm like you... a retired Catholic. Um, so, yeah. Yes, yeah, I, but... yeah, if you couldn't get from the title of our podcast, what I guess maybe doesn't signify, like, any kind of Muslim perspective to people. I don't know, but I'm, I'm Muslim, as I mention almost every single episode, if you listen to the podcast. Yeah, or I feel like I at least allude to every single episode. Uh, my name's Khalid. 
Like, yeah, but anyways, you know, I, I mean, uh, we uh, I think we, uh, we 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 might have gotten. Uh, oh wow, Interscope also did to pimp a butterfly, uh, which I mean, I'm like Kendrick Lamar and all, but that that was like a a dark title. I think you know coming out of Interscope Records. And uh, De Antwerd, our favorite South African oh, you, um, yeah. artist. Yeah, of yeah. course. Um, uh, um, you know, at least, you know, we do, uh, we're surpassing Vigilant Citizen, so I think our more measured approach is better. You know, he also has a Patreon, but we're doing we're doing better than he is. We're beating Vigilant Citizen. Okay, you know? well, so. you know, anyways. Um, <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I don't know. Did Salieri kill Mozart? I really don't know. I'd have to I watch Amadeus again. I mean, Amadeus, I think that the story in Amadeus, uh, as far as I know, that's, like, apocryphal, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it needs to be re-explored. I mean, like, you know, music people will tell you, like, music historians will tell you that that's, like, a made-up little mythical story, um, including, like, you know, not only that it was Salieri, but the whole thing of, like, the person, like, coming to him at night and demanding the Requiem, that that is, like, you know, not a, a true story, um, but... I don't know. Might be. Yeah. Me Anybody interested in like money or? It would be interesting to do like a deep from... history of like sus music stuff because like that is so rich. Like just imagine like you know even like in the nineteenth century like you know talking about like Wagner and stuff like that would be super interesting to do. Like going back to you know the eighteenth century and doing Mozart that you know classical composers that would really be uh, interesting because who like you know that's like really where like. You know, you can really get into some kind of uh, crazy uh, LaRouche build territory. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that too. But yeah, yeah. Well, oh yeah, true. Some, uh, the Verity tuning, yeah. the Verity tuning. Watch out. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So yeah, I don't know um, any anybody that wants like an interesting thread on money rituals, particularly outside of like an American context in places like maybe the Caribbean or like uh, in Africa. Uh, I think Too Young Badass, the uh, venerable Twitter user, did a pretty interesting thread on that a while back. So, you know, hit that into your search bar and uh, read about that. It's an interesting concept. I don't want to go off too hard on it right now. I need to read more into it. But, I mean, people be doing money rituals around the world. Oh, Just, yeah. People, like, let it be known. Like, yeah. whether regardless of like, whether it works or anything like that, like, this is, this is a thing that the practice people have done. I don't know if they do at the highest levels of the mu- music industry per se, but there's definitely some weird imagery emanating out that they are almost to their own artistic detriment, though I guess that never stopped them in the first place. Uh, they're pushing out relentlessly to be like, look, kids, like, your favorite star is a Satanist. <laughs> like... Uh, sacrifice is hot. Like I don't know. Like they're they're just they keep they keep banging that drum. And Lady Gaga was like a you know a, a stone a stepping stone on the way to where we are now with that kind of what if it was trendy to like do some kind of horrible dystopia like Luciferian like nightmare techno world but like glamorous. Anyways, um, uh, did you know that Vigilant Citizen has forms? And they're, they're fairly active. This is amazing. Someone posted on Monday, Barack Obama is the Antichrist. That's surprising to me that people wow. are still on that tip. Uh, really? This is an amazing okay. thread. Here's a compilation of prophetic dreams, specifically mentioning him as the Antichrist. Okay, hmm. all right. Well, all there, right. Uh, there is something about the birth certificate, the Muslim ties. It's, see, it's, it's, the it's a lot Akhenaten. like... His charisma. Oh, yeah, he, of course, he's Akhenaten. Yeah, everyone's been saying that. It's, it reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, Tom uh, on the Trail Billy's telling us about his, uh, his Pentecostal friend years ago who had had, like, a dream that 
Samuel Alito was going to like outlaw abortion because right, he had yeah. a dream of like what whatever the National Bank building was and it was like an arrow pointing right at the Supreme Court. So once again, like evangelicals get like they psyop themselves into when they're actually looking at Freemasonic conspiracies. <laughs> they think they're like seeing a sign from God that like Obama is the Antichrist or something. But um, actually, but- maybe he's just a boule mason, uh, you know, like it, it's a, you know. Wow, this is amazing. This is still like a, they're still like deep in like Obama era, like early Obama era, like Islamophobia, you know, it's like he has these Islamic ties, you know, see, I don't like these people, everyone. I don't like evangelical Christians. Like we did a whole episode talking (laughs) shit about Catholics, like, you know. It's just because we, I don't know, maybe people think we're Christians because we try to apologize and, like, be nice to those Catholics and Christians who are chill. Like, I don't know. But because they are out there, um, you know, and they're Yeah, not all Christians are chill, uh, I think we can safely say. Yes, they're not all chill. Even the ones that are on the Vigilant Citizen tip, uh, I appreciate that they're on that tip, but they have to be very careful lest they get psyoped like they did in the 80s into thinking that, like, I don't know. But wow, but like, you know what? There's also a Muslim poster on these forums. Sorry, this is going a far abroad from our uh, topic, but there's also someone posting, you know. So this is, I guess, this is the, the reactionary synthesis that we're seeing play out through our podcast on the left now, where, you know, you have mm-hmm. evangelicals posting and also Muslims posting on the Vigilant Citizens forums, and that's what we're bringing to uh, the, the left-wing discourse. It's a real kind um, of throwback. Yeah, uh, this is actually an interesting uh, point this person made in the comments on this thing, uh, saying, well, you know, there's a hadith that, uh, you know, Dajjal will have one eye. You know, I don't know if that's something that Christians say about the Antichrist as well, but, you know, it's a famous... Oh, they have one eye? Uh, yeah, that Dajjal will have one eye. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. We're almost at 9 o'clock here. Yeah. I mean... I'm looking at Kate, but I really, oh God. I mean, if people are going to get mad at the other questions, if we say something out of pocket about Kate Bush, people are really going to come for us because they love Kate Bush. Yeah. Well, we should probably stop here. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, we just can, as well. Yeah. Uh, rather than going on Kate Bush and we can, yeah, know, we can no. do more of these, uh, like, you know, uh, or we can just come back to these next month. I don't know. I feel like we've had a substantive conversation. I hope people will be <laughs> pleased, uh, you know, that, uh, in the in the amount that we've gone through on these on these topics. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe we'll start doing these. Bi- um, maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll do these bi-monthly. Maybe bi-monthly, um, but we're well, you know, just such well, slow progress as is. Well, well I, I mean, guess we like could do we bi-monthly. we'd be getting them faster or. Or we could do, like, a two-part thing. Oh, I see what you mean. You mean you know bi-monthly I mean? in the sense of, like, being published by... Mo- oh, sorry, I thought you meant semi-monthly. Uh, yeah, oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, right. yeah, yeah, two mo- yeah, two times Twice a month, a month instead of one I don't know, time. I feel like that might be a lot. Um, might be a lot. Yeah. Or we could just do it in, like... Or we could do it in, like, I don't a know. I mean, yeah, we might just go down in flames. We might just, like, be besieged by, like, Black Hammer or something. Uh, or, like, in a <laughs> confederation with Malice Zoomers for, like, remarks we made in the Q&A episodes without doing proper investigation and yet speaking. You know, True. if we do too many of these. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we can, we can... We can see. I don't know. We'll see. We'll yeah, see. we'll, we'll I feel bad. I feel bad not answering questions. I know, I do as well, I do as well, um, but, I mean, we'll, 
I mean, we just, you know, we just, uh, we're certainly giving the questions that we have answered their due. Uh, no one can say that we're not doing that. Try so it's only might. through uh, our thoroughness that, you know, we're a little bit behind. But uh, we'll, you know, we'll get to them. I don't think people will begrudge us too much. Like I said, you know, like, uh, depending on how long will you do this, inshallah, Swimil Jihad will have a long, uh, you know, and fruitful life. Uh, you know, True. we will... Like, you know, we could do this for the rest of our lives, you know, so you know, when we retire or die, you know, you can't really hold that against us. Yeah. It'd be funny I mean, if most like, of these are pretty ever to our funeral, like if Jimmy Fallon gone doesn't come to our funeral because we didn't get to his like last question. <laughs> 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 uh. It wasn't we didn't mean to. Yeah. yeah. But I guess we can we can leave it right here for now. And uh, thanks again to the grotto for providing some very substantive questions um, and making the grotto such a lively place. Yeah, the grotto's thriving. Um, it's thriving. Yeah, we recently uh, instituted some subcategories for the different uh, sub-channels to make it easy to organize, uh, you know, in line with the, uh, the discussion on uh, this episode. I, you know, I, I was very much uh, grieved as I was, like, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, angst about creating a separate religion and politics category, but, I mean, it makes <laughs> things easier to organize. Uh, so I, I did it, you know, even though it, it was painful to me to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think Jimmy found God painful did point for, out you that know, you, uh, you managed to put the, like, the religion tab and the occult tab as far away from each other as possible. No, well, I put occultism under religion, included <laughs> with all the religions that have sub-channels, uh, okay, including Islam. Okay. I did put, oh, Islam, put Islam and Christianity and on top, and I put <laughs> okay. occultism underneath that. Maybe I need to move Christianity to the bottom underneath occultism and Judaism, which... I think someone kind of facetiously said, like, how come there's no Judaism, you know, thing, like kind of trying, you know, kind of joking. But because they brought it up, I felt like I had to make one. But people just started posting like pictures of people dancing the horror in there. So I feel like maybe it wasn't like, you know, what <laughs> I was supposed to accomplish. But anyway, okay. uh, anyway, yeah, maybe um, yeah, maybe I'll move the Christianity thing down. So people stop thinking that we're Christian, you know, I, I, I try to walk a fine line because I don't want to, you know. I feel like I, I, I feel like I always am like, you know, uh, being so hard on Christians. That's like my, it, it, but then every once in a while I'll see something come online, which is like these Christians on subliminal jihad, with their Christian perspective imposing, <laughs> on, you know, it's like, what? I don't get it. I don't yeah. Get it's bizarre. It. Yeah. Uh, yeah. like I said, I think off air, like, I think that it's because like we sometimes like our, uh, you know, we sometimes uh, have, we've passed moral judgments maybe about certain things, you know, or uh, can be perceived as moralizing, which people in the Anglophone world, which is most of our audience because it's an English podcast, you know, associate with Christianity. And also we're Americans, like a Christian country. So like maybe people who aren't even in the Anglophone world, you know, might uh, receive our uh, podcast as being christian because of just the ambient christian influences in our culture well, or and just like our our antipathy generally towards satan towards uh, satan yeah in america satan, that means and yeah generally we talk about thing. god yeah exactly yeah, yeah. you know well um but stop loving satan and then we won't talk about how we don't like him so much <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah yeah if the christians no were one would have a problem them, if our podcast was about how we love satan uh, no one, except no. for, you know, I guess us in the alternate reality where 
I don't know. I guess if in the mirror universe where we're Satanists, then the people who are Satanists, I guess, would have a problem with our progress being about Satan. Um, Maybe. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm running out of steam here. I'm saying even bigger, <laughs> more okay. nonsense than usual. Yeah, um, yeah. It's okay. But we'll be back next month. Uh, anybody else on the line there that we didn't get to, um, we will get to you. We'll answer more. But until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. People seem to see right through me, but I'm Together we'll rest in